ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Voice of Neuro World Discussion with Asian Smith. Today is April the 5th, 2020. The world is in disarray. Unemployment is higher than ever. Only one man with a Blue Yeti microphone can cast light through the darkness. <laughs> What's up, dude? <laughs> What's up? <laughs> I'm hyping you up. Well, thank you. So it's been another week. It has that. We're both still alive. So far. Yep. I ran out of fresh produce again, but I do have frozen blueberries, so I think I'll live and be able to have enough vitamin C. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Yeah, how are things up in Seattle right now? That was supposed to be like a, one of the early epicenters. Yeah, the thing with Seattle is it's kind of a spooky ghost town in a way, where if you're walking around outside, there just aren't really that many people out. Uh, some people have been taking their dogs for walks and things like that, so it's it's not quite as indoorsy as maybe it was two weeks ago. People are getting over it. I think with the number of people who got it here, a lot of people probably have already gotten over it themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like they don't really have anything to worry about personally. It's only like putting others at risk, which is still a big deal. Getting that because herd immunity, huh? Stages. Yeah. Well, that's good. Hopefully uh, you can get back to normal up there before too long. People in the chat, I know there are some Seattle people here. Are you still working from home? Have they sent people back to work? Are you working remotely or locally now? I don't know. But yeah, it's lovely here. Spring is around the corner. So I'm looking forward to this year. Looking forward to having green on the trees and stuff. I picked an apartment with a nice forest view and then all the trees lost their leaves. And it's <laughs> kind of sad looking. <laughs> Indefinite suspension of operations at your work. Still remote. Kind of bored. I'll go yeah. on a Wikipedia binge. That's usually what I do when I'm either bored or procrastinating, generally the latter. Wikipedia adventures are good. YouTube adventures are also good. The Wikipedia ones, I've been on some fun adventures that don't start with the intention of you going on a wiki adventure, but you <laughs> want to look up one thing. Yeah. And then that references something else that's in blue. And you're like, well, what? I don't know what that is. So then you read what that is. And that takes you to a page. And you're like, oh, this is interesting. And it links to this. You're like, oh. I need to learn about that. I don't know. <laughs> and then four hours have passed. Yeah, that's how it works. It's an excellent time sink. Mm -hmm. And ideally, you learn a thing or two as well. Although you got to put an asterisk by it since you learned it on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything that caught your eye other than, you know, global pandemic? Yeah, well, the one that people are up in arms about that's related to the global pandemic mm -hmm. is Boris Johnson being hospitalized. Oh, was he? Yeah. I heard that. that. 
And then the Queen of England gave a speech. That kind of sounds like some boring ceremonious thing, but apparently she doesn't do that very often. We have talked about English royalty before. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a recent thing. The speech, I think, was just, what, today? Or the other day? I didn't read about it regardless. And so, unfortunately, I can't really comment on either of those. If I had to guess, the monarchs in Britain are more of like figureheads, spiritual leader kind of thing yeah. rather than like actual tactical, logistical. We're telling people to do stuff and enacting policy. Yeah, it's a so symbolic for... institution. You know, it's meant to kind of uh, rally the people during times of stress. World War Two, for example, they did that. And then, you know, just now, apparently, they've <laughs> tried to do it again. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of maintaining a monarchy in the present day is a little iffy. You know, it's kind of an archaic institution that you don't really need. And the fact that the British people keep it on is indicative of part traditionalism and part affectation for uh, the royal family. But uh, as far as what they actually do, not much. I think one of the Republican arguments and Republicanism in the UK is uh, the argument that they should just get rid of the royal family and get rid of the monarchy and just be a republic uh, like most other nations. And uh, the Republican argument is that the royal family just costs more money than they're worth. You know, they just, uh, the government spends money on their security and maintaining facilities for them and all this sort of thing. And the counter-argument by the royalists, whom are a thing still in the UK, uh, the counter-argument by the royalists is that uh, the government actually makes money off of the royal family. Apparently, the uh, royal family pays the government uh, fees, you know, and rents and whatnot, uh, allowing the government to use certain lands, estates, facilities, etc., that technically they own. And so in that way, they, the government actually makes more money than it spends on them. So that's, uh, that's sort of the reasoning there in terms of the fiscal cost of maintaining a monarchy. But really, it's not about the money. You know, really, it more is just sort of the sympathy, I guess, or empathy for uh, the royal family and uh, sort of traditional affection for them. I think they would have to screw something up pretty badly to get the public sour enough about the monarchy, uh, well, the royal family and monarchy as an institution for them to start supporting transition to a republic. And it doesn't seem like it's likely to happen anytime soon. Although there has been some drama on the royal family the past couple months, some uh, TMZ style celebrity type drama. So I haven't been paying much attention to it, but uh there was, a, I think, the, one of the princes abdicated or stepped down or some damn thing. Or he stepped away from royal responsibilities. I think that was the technical phrasing. And he's mm -hmm. trying to get over to Canada and uh, spend more time there, which led to a big debate in Canada about whether or not the government should uh, fund his security or whether he should pay for it himself. And he would have to pay for it himself because the uh, royal family and the UK government aren't going to pay for it since he's kind of relinquishing some of the privileges, uh, basically, of being a royal family member in exchange for more independence. So it may be that uh, he and his brother are sufficiently 
disenchanted with the idea of continuing the royal family and continuing to observe the obligations that are necessary in order to maintain public support for the monarchy. And if that's the case, they're either going to have to uh, give it to somebody else. (laughs) They might have to find some distant relative of the family who can kind of take up the role, or they might just pare it back completely, depending on the public mood. Yeah, the UK isn't the only European country that still has a monarchy. There's actually a couple others. I think the Dutch still do, which kind of surprised me because you never hear about the king of the Netherlands, really. I think uh, Sweden still has one. I'm sure, I hope chat can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I think uh, Sweden still has one. Denmark still has one. Spain. We got a yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, they're a lot more low profile, at least in the United States, than the King of England. Well, Queen, anyway. Obviously, the Queen steals the limelight a bit. Has been for a while. Spain obviously still has a king. That's there's a whole history there. And Portugal, I think Portugal still no. I don't. I don't think they do actually. I think they used to. Maybe somebody from Portugal can correct me on that. And I think Belgium got rid of theirs. I think they had one through World War Two, but uh, a lot of people were upset with them after the war because they saw them as being a little. Uh, not an explicit collaborator, but maybe not doing enough to resist the occupation. So I think they got rid of the monarchy in Belgium after, what, in the 1950s or something, somewhere in there. That's about it. But yeah, it's more common than you might think. Oh, I guess there's Luxembourg, too. Sorry, you were going to say something? Does the Vatican count? Depends on how you feel about the Pope. I feel like the Pope is kind of like royalty in the the sort of role because he's not involved in direct governance, kind of similar to how a monarch mm. would, but also has a certain like elevated station yeah. above the common person. Yeah, he's got a weird thing going over there in the Vatican. You know, obviously he governs the Vatican pretty much directly as far as I know. But it used to be that there was a lot, you know, the Pope used to be very powerful in Europe, but he'd never really controlled a lot of land directly. I think at its greatest extent, uh, the Pope controlled what were called the Papal States. I think that's what they were. Papal States. Yeah. And that was sort of a stretch of territory in uh, northern Italy. But really, the Pope's authority didn't come from the land so much as just that symbolic, well, religious authority, which was very prominent in medieval Europe and started waning in early modern Europe. But even then, he was still a player. You know, he could excommunicate you, which was a big deal. But, uh, he could basically, you know, this, this was more a factor in the medieval Europe. He could basically make it okay for somebody to kill you. That was what, uh, that was how that... Yeah, we learned about that in the new John Wick movie. (laughs) I still haven't seen any of the sequels. So there's a bunch of shooting, and uh, Keanu Reeves totally fights a bunch of people. That doesn't surprise me. (laughs) If it's anything like the first one, I can't say I'm surprised. 
but yeah, the Pope and the the medieval in medieval Europe, he could excommunicate you, and then anybody who wanted to go to war with you and take your land, or somebody in your family who wants to stab you in the face so that he can be king, you know, that's all kind of given the okay, religiously speaking, if you get excommunicated. So the Pope could facilitate that if you pissed him off too much. Apparently that happened in the Holy Roman Empire a couple times. I think I was reading, uh, this, this is actually, this actually came from a Wikipedia binge, kind of bringing that back to what we were talking about earlier. I was reading about the Holy Roman Empire and, uh, it was a couple emperors that were just on really bad terms with the Pope. And so the Pope just started shit with them and excommunicated them and just told everybody to go and do whatever they wanted with them. And it just caused all kinds of discord and civil unrest. And, and I think some civil war too, within the Holy Roman empire. It was a, an effective tool at that time. Later on, it didn't matter so much because States got too powerful. You know, the centralized bureaucracies really gave a lot of, power, disproportionate power to the kings, such that the nobles couldn't really threaten them like they used to. So at that point, it didn't really matter if the king got excommunicated because he, he had the bigger army, basically. Yeah, there was a big shift in warfare at that time between medieval Europe and early modern, between uh, the feudal militaries and then the professional militaries, or at least the mercenary militaries. You know, feudal militaries were all about... Uh, nobility and their obligations to fight for you. You know, if you were king, then your nobles were obligated to come and provide some of their sons, if not themselves, to go and fight in your army if you were going to war with whomever. And that system of obligations pretty much filled out most of the armies at that time. You know, they were pretty cavalry centric back then. You know, infantry were just expensive. You know, if you wanted a bunch of dudes with sticks, which is what basically pikemen were. If that's what you wanted, you had to pay them. And cash was in short supply back in the day. So it's not like you just had a bunch of gold lying around that you could use to pay for a large standing army. It was much cheaper just to get the people who owed you a favor, that being your feudal lords, to come out on their horses and go stab people on horseback. Much more cost-effective. But then the whole commercial revolution happened around, what, 1400s, 1500s, kind of around there. So then there was a lot more actual cash available, and a lot of it went to the monarchies, you know, the top level of government. So they could afford uh, to maintain large standing armies, usually of pikemen and whatnot. And uh, that was way more powerful than anything the nobility could muster. So at that point, that tipped the balance of power between... Uh, centralized states and the lower levels of government. Hmm. I don't know how we got onto that, but <laughs> there you go. By asking if the Pope is right. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> kind of. Well, I guess uh, we can do the COVID-19 stuff. I've got a bunch of notes. I was thinking we might do like a world tour because I've got notes from damn near every region of the world other than Antarctica. Sure, bring it. It's a shame you left out Antarctica there. <laughs> Two scientists in Antarctica who have been quarantined for the past 17 years continue to do their work. It's very cold. On to the next continent. Well, we could do that, but then I've also got old stuff that we never got to from, you know, the past couple months. I just kind of got overwhelmed with other stuff and, you know, all the COVID-19 news. So that's also an option, so... 
whatever you want to do. If you feel like a lot of virus news, because I do have a lot, we can do that. But then the alternative I'll offer for anybody who maybe wants something different, because I'm sure everybody's reading about it every day, we do have alternatives available that we can run through here. So I kind of leave that at your discretion. What would you prefer? Let's do the COVID update first. Gotcha. What's the current news? Okay. I actually opened up a have a whole new tab in my Excel sheet here with my notes just dedicated to this. So there's a couple developments that I wanted to hit on real quick. These are just three different things. One, it's looking like herd immunity is going to be the likely long-term solution to this. You know, that's probably inevitable. A vaccine would be cool, but it's looking like that's not going to be available for a while. You know, what I've been reading is maybe like around a year. And even then it'll take a while to distribute it to everybody. So and given how rapidly the virus is spreading, it seems more likely that uh, a critical mass of the population is going to get infected and develop immunity. And we're going to have herd immunity such that it doesn't spread around so, so much. So that seems to be where we're headed. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go out. That doesn't mean you shouldn't practice all of the uh, defensive measures, all of the protective measures that have been recommended by uh, your respective governments. I know not everybody listening is from the U.S. Here in the U.S., it's the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. They're pretty much leading the way in terms of uh, advice for you know how to deal with it and what to do about it. So let's see. So there was that. And there's also there's also in the United States been shifting recommendations on mask usage. The CDC uh, had been saying that normal people should not be wearing masks because there's a shortage and they wanted to economize usage so that to make sure that as many were as available for medical professionals as possible. Uh, but they'd also been saying that it didn't really do much to limit the spread of the virus. Now they're revising that and they're saying that uh, the public citizens rather, citizens should use non-medical cloth as a mask. That's been the latest recommendation. So you should, you still shouldn't be using masks. They're still trying to economize those given the shortage, but they are saying now that there actually is evidence suggesting that uh, the spread of the virus could be limited you know, or at least inhibited uh, if you wear non-medical cloth of some kind. Did we just get an official recommendation from the CDC to do the t-shirt ninja thing? <laughs> well, I guess that technically does qualify as non-medical cloth. You know, whatever works. But I guess, yeah, you could say that. Yeah, over in Asia, they've, uh, you know, mask wearing in Asia is like a cultural thing. That's something they've been doing pretty regularly for decades. You know, Japan, South Korea increasingly China as well. You know, just wearing a medical mask when you're sick uh, is considered a form of politeness. It's uh, it's what you do so that you don't get others sick. And if you don't do that, then that's considered rude. It's like you don't care uh, what other people, you know, if somebody else gets sick because of you. So mask wearing is an established thing. I think it was even fashionable for a while. Some people would just wear them because they liked them. So when the virus outbreak happened in uh, China, you know, everybody would just wear masks. It was a kind of a normal thing. It wasn't unusual for them. And the same for, you know, South Korea, Japan. And I've uh, read some arguments that one of the reasons that the virus didn't spread as much in those places, above and beyond just strong government responses, that the public, broader public, wore masks a lot and that inhibited the spread to a degree that uh, you don't see in, say, the West, where, you know, mask wearing is not really as normal. You know, people will do it, uh, but it's not like a go-to thing. 
you know, I think I don't think I've ever seen anybody in the United States, for example, wear a medical mask when they were sick. Uh, when I've seen them, generally they either stay home or just use lots of Kleenex, but uh, not so much wearing a mask. You know, would you agree with that, Neuro? Have you ever seen that? Uh, in Seattle, when I was out like going for a run last week, of the people I saw outside, it was probably ten percent were wearing mm-hmm. a mask. Well, I mean, like before COVID nineteen. Oh, uh, only if they were, I think, like of Asian culture. Mm, gotcha. So yeah, it's comparatively rare. Or if you're like a a worker, and that's part of your work yeah. hour. Yeah, so that just speaks to that, you know, that uh, how rare it is here. It's not really a cultural phenomenon like it is in Asia. And so that may have exacerbated the virus's spread here. So let's see, that was a point. And then the third point here is that uh, I was reading that there is new evidence now that asymptomatic carriers are uh, likely key spreaders of the virus. I was reading some news from China. I'm getting a little ahead of my notes here, but there was some uh, evidence in China uh, that people are still carrying the virus, so to speak, even after they've healed. You know, we already know that you don't show symptoms for the first couple of weeks that you're infected, but it seems that you can uh, still infect people even after you've healed for some period of time, perhaps a couple of weeks. That's not confirmed, but there was some evidence to that effect out of China. I'll kind of talk a little more about that later. But in so much as that is true, if that is true, uh, that suggests that even if you get it and recover, then you should still try to do the social distancing and all that jazz. Uh, in fact, especially if you've had it, because then you could very easily infect other people then. So let's see, those are some developments there. And I read some recommendations. That, this is from an article I was reading, just general recommendations for international cooperation. And I thought this might be worth kind of going over briefly. Just to illustrate the kind of international cooperation that would have normally happened during a major international crisis like this, but has not been happening now because of the politics of the day, not only in the United States, but in other countries, other parts of the world. So just to kind of run through this real quick, one, some things you could do, and this article talked specifically about containing uh, secondary outbreaks. So this is something that can be done in the future. This is still relevant. This isn't something that should have been done earlier, this is still relevant uh, to policymakers now. So one thing is, uh, and this is a quote from the article, better coordinate the implementation of lockdowns, travel restrictions, testing and screening at airports, and the eventual reopening of national borders. So that right there is just about people, uh, quarantines and whatnot, just trying to control the flow of people between countries. Right now, there hasn't been a lot of cooperation between countries on that count. It's pretty much just been done on a country-to-country basis. You know, whenever one country thinks they're at risk, then they implement a measure. Uh, But they haven't really been, uh, you know, negotiating with each other about how they might mitigate any friction from that and how they can try to do it in a way that would make it more effective. You know, Donald Trump, for example, in the Trump administration implemented the travel ban on Europe, which was not a bad move in retrospect, uh, but he did it without any kind of consultation with any European leaders. He just kind of did it. And you can do that. And, you know, you could argue that that isn't necessarily a bad thing itself, but it's not very helpful in the long run just because it 
undermines the overall atmosphere of cooperation. You know, if you do want to work with international partners, it helps to set the tone by regularly consulting them and building a culture of cooperation such that it's expected. You know, the less it's expected, the less it's going to happen, basically. You know, that doesn't sound like something Trump would say. (laughs) So let's see, the next one here, also a direct quote, help coordinate the allocation of critical medical equipment, including masks and ventilators, which are running in short supply around the globe. Also, they recommend developing guidelines to ensure a rational system for prioritizing access and distribution uh, of these kinds of items. And they note particularly so for developing countries. So this has to do with the shortages of medical equipment. Uh, You know, given that the spread of the virus has been rolling from country to country, it would probably have been helpful and can still be helpful uh, if there was international cooperation to pool resources, to pool production of needed medical supplies, and then distribute them to countries as they encounter the virus, as they start reaching peak capacity. You know, doing so could uh, ensure that more medical supplies are available when they're needed, you know, such that uh, countries that have surpluses right now and are starting to hoard them so they can be ready later when they reach rather peak caseload, they can give that surplus to somebody else who's already at peak caseload. And then later on, once the other country has passed, uh, they can give their leftovers to the other country once the virus spreads there. So that's just a rough example of the, the kind of cooperation this would entail. And uh, this would probably help uh, ease the shortages such as they are. But right now, that's definitely not happening. In fact, the opposite has been happening. I've been reading a couple of stories over the past couple of weeks about countries competing with each other on the international market for medical supplies, uh, which are obviously, again, uh, in short supply. I think the Israeli government, in an article I read, uh, the Israeli government tasked its intelligence agency, the Shen Bet, uh, to go out and acquire medical supplies by any means necessary. So there were I think there was one case where uh, they were going to buy some at a warehouse, buy some masks or something, or ventilators. I think it was ventilators. They were going to buy some ventilators at a warehouse in Germany. But while they were on the way to the warehouse, like literally driving there, the German government got there first and confiscated all of them. So there's there's competition on that count. The U.S. has kind of been, uh, the U.S. government rather has kind of been generating some tension doing stuff like this more recently. And I've got updates on that coming later as well. And, you know, it has to do with uh, 3M specifically in Canada and I think also Germany. Although the German case is a little iffy. I think there was an update on that. But regardless, there's been competition for resources where there probably should have been cooperation. So let's see. That's that's two. So then the third one here, and again, the third quote from the article should specify joint actions its members will take to reduce the economic impact of the crisis, uh, stipulating that leaders need to implement coordinated fiscal stimulus measures and take steps to increase lending capacity. Now, this this is actually kind of being done on the level of monetary policy because central banks are independent of governments, so they can just kind of deal with the crisis unimpeded. So the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, these are the two main ones. I think also the UK Central Bank have all been working together to try to maintain liquidity in financial markets and uh, provide funding for various lending programs and lending facilities, as they're called, uh, for various market actors to try to uh, mitigate as much as possible the economic damage. You know, we've talked before about how we can't really stimulate the economy right now. We're not going to boost demand because there's nobody going out and 
demanding anything. Everybody is staying home. So the most you can do is mitigate damage by trying to make sure that, uh, you know, people, companies, corporations, what have you, who have fixed costs uh, that they have to meet, but don't have the income to meet on account of the virus, to make sure the fact that they can't meet those fixed costs doesn't mean that they have to go under and declare bankruptcy and are thus unavailable. Uh, well, and thus will be unavailable for when the crisis ebbs and uh, the economy starts to recover. You want to try to make sure as many businesses survive as possible so that they can start employing people again as soon as possible when the all clear is given, whenever that happens. So central banks have been doing a pretty good job on that. Governments have been dragging their feet a little more. That's just kind of inherent to fiscal policy. It takes a while to negotiate uh, a plan of action that kind of meets everybody, that is to everybody's satisfaction. Uh, but it has been happening. And uh, But it might have been helpful if there was some international cooperation on that count as well. That probably wasn't going to happen between, say, the developed nations, you know, Europe and the United States and whatnot, probably weren't going to start dumping money into each other's economies. I've, that's probably a bridge too far, politically speaking. But in terms of the developing world, a little money goes a long way. So if the Europeans and the Americans uh, and maybe also, you know, other middle income countries and uh, also Japan, maybe if they could pool resources to try to make some funds of some kind available to developing nation governments, that could save a lot of lives and help mitigate the economic damage as well. Since obviously uh, the developing market is not necessarily important, economically speaking, relative to developed economies, but it's still important in terms of the resources they provide. And it's important in the sense that there are sources of growth. You know, the developing world is the source of most of the economic growth in the world. And so helping them out uh, will help the economic recovery in the developed world. So if there could be some cooperation on that count, that would be useful as well. Now, let's see. These are all recommendations for the G20, which is a group of the 20th wealthiest nations in the world. It's a broader group than, say, the G7. And the article in question had different recommendations for the G7. Now, the G7 are much wealthier uh, on average than the G20. So the recommendations for them are as follows. Uh, help facilitate joint research on vaccine development. That's kind of an easy one. Also obvious. I don't think I have to explain that. The next one was help coordinate production of scarce medical supplies. Already kind of talked about that. But obviously, developed nations have more administrative capacity. You know, they have larger governments that can do more and are better resourced. So uh, their ability to coordinate on something like that is greater. And also, developed countries generally have a lot of the manufacturers that produce this stuff, not always in their own countries, but abroad, perhaps. And so they have uh, power over those companies that other governments do not have and can act to try to direct supplies as needed in a way that developing governments cannot. And then the third recommendation for the G7 was to take action to counter Beijing's disinformation campaign about the source of the virus. That's probably not that helpful in terms of mitigating the effect of the virus. Uh, but the author and the question thought it was important enough to uh, include in their list here. In general, I, you know, we've talked about disinformation and social media before. And in general, I've been skeptical about just how impactful it actually is. But I recognize that a lot of people do take that seriously. So this is another example where international cooperation could be useful. So let's see. Then the author pointed out something called uh, the D10, which I hadn't heard of before. It's apparently a group of 10 democratic nations. Basically, it's the G7 plus South Korea, Australia, 
and the European Union, which I guess they're counting as a separate entity than the uh, constituent European governments within the European Union. So action on their part is more intuitive because they're they all have close relations economically and politically and have more scope for cooperation and more precedent for cooperation than say democratic nations and Russia or China or you know, one of the other authoritarian nations or even the developing world in general. Uh, so that's a reason to believe that uh, cooperation would be relatively easy comparatively and that any cooperation that does happen internationally should happen at the very least between democratic nations and uh, perhaps that could set a precedent that then other nations could follow and join in on. So this is all just uh, from one article I read, just a list of uh, ideas for international cooperation. And it illustrates you know, what could happen and what generally would have happened in past crises, but international relations uh, are just not at that level right now. You know, They're not at a state where cooperation is intuitive or is even necessarily desirable, depending on the government. So for those of you who are too young to remember uh, a pre-populist era of American politics, this is kind of what you're missing out on to a degree. You mentioned looking into the origins of COVID-19. I think there's a instinctual or natural human desire to have a cause for everything mm -hmm. and especially if something bad happens hold someone accountable for it so even if it doesn't really make sense i think we kind of want someone to blame mm -hmm. must have been someone's fault that got all of this started versus the random chance of sometimes the virus just evolves in a certain way and it's gonna chop a bunch of us based on who's vulnerable to it and it's kind of the cruel indifference of the universe. We kind of want it to be pointed to somebody who fucked up, I think, because that's more intuitive than just a, a cruel world. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it actually reminds me of Sean Connery. <laughs> you think it's Sean Connery's fault? No, I don't, think, I don't think it's Sean Connery's fault. No, Sean Connery was in a movie where he played uh, an investigator, retired cop or something, who had spent a lot of time in Japan. He was kind of a Japan expert. And uh, in the movie, there was a police detective who was investigating a murder that had happened that involved the Yakuza. Obviously, this is from the 80s. You can kind of tell. This is a very 80s theme for movie plot. I don't remember the name of the movie. It kind of escapes me, but I'm sure you could just Google Sean Connery Japan movie, and it'll probably be one of the top returns. But the relevance here is that uh, there was one scene that always kind of stuck with me where Sean Connery, or his character anyway, was talking about uh, the difference between Western and Japanese ways of dealing with problems. And uh, he says that, well, he said that in the West, there's a need to blame somebody. They need to find somebody uh, who can be the scapegoat, who they can kind of point to and say, this is why things were wrong. And then they punish that guy. And he makes the point that uh, the Japanese method of dealing with a problem is to find out what actually went wrong and to try to make sure it doesn't happen again rather than focusing on punishment and he notes that uh you know in a sort of sean connery type way their way is better <laughs> i can't i can't do the accent but it's memorable if you can listen to it so let's see what else did we have here so <clears throat> 
there was some there was also an article I read about China and some of the you know I was trying to read an update on what was going on there basically. So uh, let's see, there were some people in China who were infected, who then tested positive for the virus after recovering. So this goes back to what I was talking about before. Um, that raises the question of whether recovery means you become asymptomatic carrier rather than uh, completely bereft of the virus and whether there could be secondary outbreaks. Now that's a big deal because if there are secondary outbreaks, especially in China right now, I think that's kind of the case that uh, people are watching because that's where it broke out first. So presumably if there are secondary outbreaks, they'll happen in China first. One of the implicit arguments being made by economists in predicting a U-shaped economic recovery, I don't think anybody's even bothering with a V-shaped economic recovery prediction at this point, but one of the implicit arguments behind a U, predicting a U-shaped economic recovery is that after a couple of weeks, then the virus subsides and then governments give the all clear and then things can go back to normal or something resembling normal. But if there's going to be secondary outbreaks, that could mean that, that we have to return uh, to quarantines again later on, which means that this could be something that recurs several times. You know, it's not going to be just one month or two of quarantines. It's going to be a month or two of quarantines and then maybe a month or two off. And then we have to do a month or two of quarantine again. Now, right now, I think expectations and markets are that there's going to be a U-shaped recovery, or at least that's the hope. And so one of the reasons there hasn't been as dramatic fall-offs and, uh, well, one of the reasons there hasn't been even more dramatic fall-offs in economic activity is because there's an expectation that things will return to normal and that businesses will start making money again. But if uh, secondary outbreaks become the expectation, uh, and more specifically, if further quarantines for an extended period of time, off and on again over time, if that's what's expected, the markets are going to, well, probably fall significantly again. Uh, but also, there's also going to be a much greater reluctance to invest and much more of an inclination to shut down a lot of businesses. You know, a lot of businessmen are going to figure that uh, they're probably not going to make it in the long term if they have to constantly worry about quarantines for the next year plus, which may be about how long it would take for the off and on quarantines to finally end. So if there are secondary outbreaks in China, that could impact expectations in a way that significantly impacts the economy. And uh, if that happens, then I think one of two things will happen. On the one hand, we could have uh, a continuing shutdown off and on again, like I was saying, in which case there's going to be a lot of pressure on the government to take action, to provide funds and uh, to provide, you know, to encourage forbearance or even mandate forbearance. We had a long talk about forbearance last time. So that's, that's going to create a whole bunch of policy challenges for government and a whole bunch of economic difficulties for people. Now, the other alternative, well, the alternative to that is to just basically just say, screw it and then end it and just take the hit in terms of deaths, which is callous. But if you're looking at massive economic dislocation and damage due to a prolonged off and on year long set of quarantines, it may be that the uh, alternative of incurring relatively large numbers of deaths over that time frame is preferable to the massive economic dislocation, which could in, could itself lead to political problems down the road, economic problems, social problems. I mean, there's a lot of uh, question marks about what would happen if you went that route. It's kind of a Pandora's box. And, you know, there's already some people that would prefer that, that trade-off be made. Obviously, in media, there's been a talk about that, whether there should the economy should just be opened up again uh, to try to preserve as a uh, 
to try to preserve as many businesses po- as possible and to try to keep incomes flowing, especially to people who are too poor to go a prolonged period without uh, having access to income, either from the government or from a job of some kind. So that's the trade-off being talked now. It's not a very sympathetic argument, I think, at this point, because I think right now the focus is on saving as many lives as possible. But uh, you know, if we're looking at a year-long quarantine instead of just one month, then that calculus is going to start to shift, and that could actually become a viable option. At that point, herd immunity could be official government policy rather than the, the de facto solution, like I was talking about earlier. So that's the importance of watching China for secondary outbreaks. And so that's why uh, this news was important, because this discovery that you're still infectious after you recover could suggest that it's going to be more likely that there's going to be secondary outbreaks. It's not proof. It could still be managed, but uh, that's not a good sign in the early going here. So to kind of continue with that story, the official party line in China is that asymptomatic carriers are not infectious. Uh, But again, evidence suggests otherwise. So it could be that the government there uh, is trying to mitigate the risk of secondary outbreaks, or more accurately, is trying to mitigate the risk of uh, the knock-on effects of secondary outbreaks by trying to control information, by trying to restrict uh, the flow of information so that it's not clear whether or not there are secondary outbreaks, or to maybe just block it out of the media entirely. Uh, The Chinese government has been pushing people to get back to work, so that kind of fits with their preference there. You know, they have an incentive uh, to censor news about secondary outbreaks since they're trying to encourage people to get back to work so the economy can get back on track. Keep in mind, the Chinese government has a lot of power in the Chinese economy, but they don't necessarily have infinite resources. You know, if the economy tanks for for a prolonged period, that's going to hurt them. And politically, that's risky. So the government doesn't really want to do that. So that's part of the reason they're pushing people to get back to work. Now, another issue here, another possible explanation for why people are testing positive for the virus after they've recovered here. And another possibility here is that uh, a false positive test. It could be there's faulty tests at work. Uh, Let's see, I have the quote here from the article I read. In February, Wang Chung, a director at the state-run Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, uh, estimated that the nucleic acid tests used in China were accurate at, at identifying positive cases of the coronavirus only 30 to 50% of the time. So that suggests then that maybe this isn't as big of an issue because it could just be down to testing. Again, that's kind of a recurring theme in uh, talking about the virus. You know, testing is the principal way that we generate data uh, about the virus uh, above and beyond, you know, actually studying the biology of the virus itself and the impact it has. So issues with testing are kind of distorting the data that we have available in a number of ways. And this could be another such way. So that would be a more positive spin on it because that suggests maybe there won't then be, well, at least there won't be as much of a risk of secondary outbreaks. So I'll take the time now here to do the usual disclaimer. Um, I'm not an expert at everything I talk about. I'm sure it's been made painfully obvious many times over the years. So if I ever say anything stupid, ignorant, or biased, chat is encouraged to correct me. Uh, I don't read chat while we do this, but I will read it afterwards. I will see what you say eventually. And you know, one of the things I really enjoy about this and get out of it is getting feedback from people and learning from other people who have different backgrounds and knowledge and expertise and whatnot. So participation is definitely encouraged in that regard.
Dude, we missed April Fools. Where you say usual disclaimer, I'm an expert on everything. <laughs> I'm the ultimate source of knowledge. Any question that I've answered is necessarily correct. <laughs> Let's see here. So a couple other items. I've got region to region stories as well, and we haven't even started on that. That's gonna take a while. But before I'm just doing some more generic stuff here to start. For developing, regarding developing markets, uh, the International Institute of Finance says that uh, the largest outflow of capital in history is occurring uh, from developing markets. It's about $80 billion thus far and growing. Uh, basically, everybody is concerned about the general fall off and global economic activity. And so investors are trying to pull their investment out of developing markets and put them into safe assets. Uh, maybe gold, maybe U.S. Treasuries, Swiss debt, you know, whatever safe asset you can think of. Generally, that's what people are preferring. It's not a complete pullout from developing markets, but it, it is a significant redistribution of uh, portfolios that is happening. You know, people during times of crisis like this generally shift their investment portfolios to be more risk averse. They try to invest in more safe things. And so that redistribution is pretty large right now, given the scale of the crisis. So developing markets are get, getting hit pretty hard in that regard. So that could create economic difficulties down the road here, since it might be a while before investors feel confident enough to start putting that money back in. So any developing markets around the world that were generating significant amounts of growth from foreign investment are probably going to be growing slower over the next year or so. Uh, and depending on political stability, that could be a problem. We'll see. It's something to watch. Turkey got hit kind of in a similar manner when uh, Erdogan was talking shit about his central bank, <laughs> which is always a dumb move. He, uh, he was saying that the central bank in Turkey needed to uh, lower the interest rate so that it was cheaper to borrow money. Erdogan uh, likes cheap money because he has he's the head of a patronage network of which uh, various businesses are a key component. And one of the ways that he's able to kind of get those businesses to stay on his side within his patronage network is to direct uh, funds to them, be they government funds in the form of infrastructure projects uh, or, in the fund, or in the form of government loans of, of one sort or another. And so cheaper loans is beneficial to the patronage network then because then he can more easily get loans for those businesses or more accurately, those businesses can more easily get loans to pay for whatever project it is that he's organizing. So he started putting pressure on the central bank to lower interest rates and international economic, well, I should just say markets, international markets and investors got a little spooked since if a central bank is not independent, then that raises a question about how stable the currency is. And when that became apparent, there was a fall off in foreign investment. People started pulling their money out. And apparently Turkey has not yet really recovered from that period. There was also the whole uh, American pastor thing. There was an American pastor who was under arrest in Turkey and the U.S. government was pressuring the Turkish government to release him, but they didn't want to. It's something to do with Kurds. I don't quite remember the specifics of it. But regardless, the Trump administration does what it does best, did what it does best, which is to start issuing bellicose threats. They started saying, you know, Trump himself was issuing uh, tweets uh, to the effect that he was going to crush the Turkish economy. So that, that also 
undermined uh, international investor confidence in Turkey. And so that didn't help things. I think inflation is still a, at an elevated level in Turkey even now. You know, somebody from Turkey can... And the president comfortably rolled over in his bed, reached for his phone, decided to, you know, hit up the old Twitter.com, tweeted at the president and prime minister of Turkey saying that he would utterly smash their economy and then rolled over to his other <laughs> pillow. <laughs> You know, the funniest thing about that is that it's pretty believable. <laughs> I could totally see that. Well, as it happened, it worked. <laughs> the Turkish government did release the pastor. So, hey, can't knock it entirely, at least in that case. But anyway, that just illustrates the importance of foreign investment to developing markets. You know, if you lose it, then it can kind of hinder your economy for a while. So that seems to become something not just Turkey is going to be struggling with, but also the rest of the developing world as well, at least in the short to medium term. So then I also had an article here, and you know, I I read a lot of articles from week to week, and so some of them I think are more relevant than others, but everybody is writing about COVID-19, so I have a lot of information to work with. So this next one was about uh, food. You know, obviously food is pretty important. As far as, uh, you know, avoiding starvation in a time when nobody has income. And one of the things I read is that some countries are limiting uh, exports of food and uh, trying to go out of their way to import more and to ration it for those that don't produce enough food to feed themselves. So I don't think this is going to be a major issue because I think there's more than enough food to go around right now. You know, we still the U.S. and Canada and uh, South America are still exporting quite a bit. So. That should be fine. And food networks don't seem to have been really disrupted that much by the virus. You know, obviously, uh, logistical workers are essential workers and everybody is uh, policymakers around the world are trying to make sure that essential workers of whatever kind, however they define it, uh, are still working to try to make sure essential supplies are still getting through. Food is among them. And so far, it seems to be working. We'll see how that works in the long run. Hopefully, they'h hopefully it won't there won't be a long run. Hopefully, it's all over in the short to medium term. But for now, anyway, it's not an issue. But for some countries, uh, it is an issue. And so, I just wanted to kind of run through some examples here. Uh, let's see, Kazakhstan, one of the world's biggest shippers of wheat flour, banned exports of uh, wheat flour along with some others, including carrots, sugar, and potatoes. Apparently, they'd already stopped exports of some other food staples like buckwheat and onions earlier. So that's an example of uh, export controls uh, from a country that's a net exporter. And obviously, the intuition there from a policy perspective is to try to make sure that you have as much food as possible available for your people, whom increasingly cannot afford food, again, because of the quarantines and shutdowns. So you can try to take control of the network as the government and try to distribute those uh, command economy style to try to make sure there's no starvation. So let's see, Vietnam, for its part, temporarily suspended new rice export contracts. Similar idea here. Uh, Serbia, for its part, stopped the flow of its sunflower oil and other, I'm assuming exports here, exports of sunflower oil and other goods. I don't know why sunflower oil is important enough to stop the export of, but they did. Maybe we've got some Serbians listening who can maybe tell me what's important about sunflower oil. Uh, Russia hasn't done anything, but they're leaving the door open uh, to shipment bans 
they say they're assessing the situation weekly, quote unquote. Russia is a pretty big exporter of wheat. I think most of it goes to Europe, but I could be wrong. Uh, so if they shut off exports, that would be a big deal for Europeans. So if you're European, keep an eye on that. Uh, let's see. So beyond export controls, there's also some countries that are trying to stockpile. Uh, they're trying to build up strategic reserves. Uh, let's see. The note I have here is regards China. Uh, let's see. They're the biggest rice grower and consumer. Uh, it, this might surprise people. China is actually the largest, the leading agricultural producer on the planet, like by a large margin. They make more agricultural produce than anybody else, which might surprise people because you might think it would be the United States or Canada, uh, you know, because they export so much. But while the United States and Canada are the world's leading exporters of agricultural goods overall, in terms of total amount of production consumed both domestically and exported, it's actually a lot smaller than the total production in China. You know, the issue that China has is that as much as they produce, it's still not enough to feed everybody. So they have to import a lot. But just looking at total production, they're actually a leader. So anyway, that's I guess that's some trivia there. But getting back to the note here, they're the biggest rice grower and consumer, and they've pledged to buy more than ever before uh, from the domestic harvest. You know, normally it's kind of more of a market economy for rice, but the government is saying that they're going to dip into the market and try to buy uh, a good amount so that they can stockpile it. And apparently they've already got uh, they've already got a very large stockpile in place. Apparently enough for one year of consumption, according to the article. But they're stockpiling more just in case. So let's see. So that's stockpiling, export controls. So what about the wheat importers? So there's two key wheat importers, as described in the article, Algeria and Turkey. And uh, they've apparently issued new tenders uh, to try to buy uh, more wheat on the international market. If it's being done by the government, then that's an example of the government worried that maybe the market will dry up and that uh, they're going to be left high and dry. So dipping into the international market to ensure a supply in the future, just in case, in a similar vein to China there. Uh, Morocco said that a suspension on wheat import duties would last through mid-June. So that's kind of similar, uh, but a little bit different. You know, that's uh, not explicit government action, but more of an indirect move uh, by utilizing duties, import duties. So that's all just meant to be a snapshot for what's going on in terms of international agricultural markets. Again, I don't expect it to be a crisis. I don't think there's going to be mass shortages of food internationally and or domestically for that matter. But uh, there are some countries that are sufficiently worried about it that they've been taking some action in that vein. And this is what's been happening thus far, or at least in the one article I read about it. Again, it's a pretty shotgun approach I'm taking this session. It's just a lot of information from different sources and different issues. Okay, so then that's it for generic notes. The next bit here is just region to region. So let's see. Uh, I guess we'll start with South Asia, if that's okay. It's just, uh, and these aren't like in-depth, you know, view, reviews of what different countries are doing in these regions. These are just specific items and notes that I uh, just accumulated from the reading. Again, damn near everything I read the past week just had to do with different countries doing things related to the virus. So I didn't really have a whole lot else to go on other than the older stuff that we never got to anyway. So let's see, in Pakistan, uh, Sindh province, which is the southernmost province in Pakistan, imposed a three-hour curfew. Um, well, a three-hour curfew-like lockdown, 
as was written, in an effort to stop people from attending Friday congregational prayers. Obviously, Islam is a big deal in Pakistan, and a lot of people, especially in times of crisis, want to go to mosque. But that's kind of a problem if there's a global pandemic. So the government is having to implement rules to restrict that. Because, uh, you know, you might think it's intuitive not to go to mosque in a big crowd during a global pandemic, but uh, enough people were still going that the government had to take action. And in this case, it's happening at the provincial level. Uh, the article, uh, the author of the article in question noted that in rural areas, going to mosque is like a habit. You know, it's just something that they do regularly every week, almost without thinking about it. So it's a hard habit to break, even uh, when it's kind of not recommended you know, hence the problem, you know, that's uh, why people are still going basically. So let's see, India here, we kind of already talked about this last week, you know, the Indian government announced a surprise with very little warning that there was going to be a nationwide shutdown of the economy. You know, Prime Minister Modi went on TV and announced that it was going to go into effect midnight that night. So that's, uh, that gives you an idea of how little forewarning there was and how little time there was to prepare for it. Well, one of the knock-on effects of that was that uh, a lot of migrant workers working in the major cities of India uh, had to get back to their villages because they didn't, you know, if you're not going to do anything, if you can't make any money in the city, you might as well go back where your home is uh, so that you can kind of stay there and rely on your family network to try to make it through these, uh, make it through the crisis. But uh, the unforeseen issue that arose is that millions of people trying to move large distances all at once overwhelms the transportation network and also means that a lot of people are in close proximity to each other, contrary to recommendations. You know, you don't want large crowds altogether inside of a bus or a train or, you know, what have you. But if millions of migrant workers need to do that to get back home, then that's what's going to happen. So I think besides uh, not giving people enough time to prepare, the Indian government also kind of blundered on this by accidentally facilitating conditions, you know, significantly exacerbating and facilitating conditions that are probably going to significantly spread the virus, especially amongst rural areas where a lot of the migrant workers are going now. Let's see, the Indian government also uh, flew some charter planes out to uh, pick up some stranded citizens who were out in other countries. That's a pretty standard move at this point. There's a lot of people who can't get to where they need to go because of travel restrictions of one sort or another. And uh, for the governments that have the resources for it, they're flying planes out to try to pick those people up and get them back home. So India has been one of the countries doing that. Okay, that's South Asia. Again, not a lot on South Asia, but here comes Europe, which I have a whole bunch on. So let's see, European Commission showed some flexibility. Okay, this has to do with deficit spending. Obviously, there's a rule in the European Union that governments are not supposed to have deficits above a certain threshold. And that was a big deal during the Eurozone crisis some years ago. Well, now the Eurozone, uh, the European Union Commission has come out and said that those conditions, those restrictions are going to be relaxed. I don't know that they really needed to since very few countries were actually observing that rule, but now there's uh, no restriction in place uh, for the duration of the crisis. So governments can spend as much as they need to to try to float their economies and do whatever else they need to do in response to the crisis. So that's one action taken at the European Union level. Also, the Schengen system has, I don't want to say broken down, it kind of broke down more because of the immigration crisis that was 
a big clusterfuck. But in this case, there was more of an orderly shutdown of the Schengen system. The Schengen system is uh, the free movement of labor between European countries. You know, the fact that you can move easily without needing a visa from France to Belgium to Germany, etc. That's all stems from the legal work done stemming from the Schengen Treaty. I think that's what it was anyway. And, uh, or maybe that's the Schengen zone, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. The, the Schengen zone is this area within which you can move without needing a visa in Europe. And, uh, because, uh, different countries in Europe are trying to mitigate the spread of the virus, they've been implementing border controls, uh, to try to, you know, test people and to limit entry to make sure only people that need to be traveling are the ones traveling. So that's another action being taken. And this has been misconstrued by some as being, you know, a collapse of the European Union and, well, maybe not a collapse, but uh, they're arguing that this shows that national governments are being selfish and that they're kind of reverting to form. You know, they're not uh, cooperating as much as they said they would, as would be ideal in a uh, supranational institution like the European Union. But I think that's a bit overwrought. You know, the European Union has definitely not done as much as it could as an institution and constituent European nations are not cooperating as much as they could. But that doesn't mean that they're not cooperating. There have been actions taken. There have been movements of supplies from one government to the other. There has been a coordinated fiscal response to a degree, coordinating monetary response. So that's easy because of the ECB. So there is cooperation happening. It's not as though the European Union is just completely failing here, but uh, that there is room for improvement. Let's see what else has been going on in Europe, collaborating on medical equipment, you know, another example of cooperation. So there's this also, there was also this uh, negotiation over what the media called Corona bonds. This basically entailed uh, the creation of bonds that governments could issue, uh, but which were backed by the European Union. Now, right now that doesn't happen. Right now, countries that issue bonds in order to borrow money Uh, do so, issue the bonds with them being backed only by the government in question. So when Italy borrows money, Italy is on the hook to pay it back. Now, the idea behind the corona bonds, and it's basically the same thing as the euro bonds, for those of you who maybe remember the eurozone crisis, is that uh, a government like, say, Italy would be able to issue a bond that was backed not only by Italy, but also the European Union as a whole. And the idea there is that Italy would be able to borrow at cheaper interest rates if the bonds were backed by the European Union as a whole, and hence they could borrow more money and thus would have more resources with which to deal with the crisis. You know, 10 years ago, the Eurozone crisis, now the COVID-19 crisis. Now, Euro bonds 10 years ago and the Corona bonds now were very controversial, especially amongst, I think, what the media calls the frugal four, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, Austria, and I think Denmark. So these four countries in particular were very skeptical about collectivizing European debt in this way. And uh, they opposed it 10 years ago, and they still oppose it now. And because of that opposition, the idea of corona bonds uh, failed. So that's not going to happen. They might revisit the subject later, but for now, the uh, it seems it's a dead letter. So a lot of people in Southern Europe, you know, like Italy, Greece, etc., are pretty upset about it because uh, they think it is. They think it represents an example of, uh, they think it represents a lack of solidarity on the part of their European partners. You know, the wealthier countries in Europe are not lending a helping hand to their poorer cousins in the South. 
Yeah, that probably is also a bit overwrought. You know, again, there is cooperation happening. But the idea of uh, euro bonds or corona bonds, however you want to frame that, the idea that a crisis like this was going to facilitate that, I think, was always a stretch. I think it's uh, no surprise that it failed in the way it did. So I don't think you can't, I don't think you can really be all that surprised. And I think it's just dramatics on the part of the Italian government that they're making a big deal of, making a big deal about it. That's not to say that uh, the discontent in Italy about it is not heartfelt. I'm sure it is. I'm sure we might have some uh, Italians listening and they can maybe elaborate on that a bit. You know, we, I, I always like hearing about hearing from people in other countries, uh, the countries that we talk about, because it's interesting getting that firsthand account from people on the ground, so to speak. It's one of the fun things about having our chat. And I think we did get the flag thing back. Yeah, there it is. Don't think, yeah, well, there's one. I think it's one. Yeah, one Italian. <laughs> Buongiorno. I speak the best Italian, Agent Smith, third best. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, oh, I have in my notes here, one of the reasons Italy is particularly upset is that there was a ban on exports of medical equipment uh, when Italy was fa- facing its uh, peak caseload of uh, virus in, uh, cases. So at that time, there was, I think, Germany uh, put some export restrictions on medical equipment. So that obviously was a big problem. Yeah, that's a much better example of failure of cooperation than, say, the corona bonds, uh, which was already a hot button issue in European politics well before the well before this crisis. Let's see. Now, to be fair to Germany, they did push for an alternative. Their alternative was bailout loans with strict conditionality. Uh, They think that countries that need loans should be able to get them from the European Stability Mechanism, which is providing a 500 billion euro bailout fund. And of course, anybody who does get that money uh, would be under the direction of the Troika, which I think was the European Central Bank, the IMF, and one other one that's slipping my mind. Don't quite, maybe it was the European Union. But whatever it was, uh, the government that borrowed money from the program would have to implement certain policy reforms as a condition. And the policy reforms required would be outlined by the Troika. And they would decide as a collective what reforms would be necessary. Generally, these reforms are meant to open up the economy, liberalize it, make it more competitive, etc., such that it can grow later on when things start getting better. You know, again, this has strong shades of the Eurozone crisis where this was all a huge source of debate. Uh, if you want to, you know, during a crisis, you'd like to think that you could get help without a lot of conditions, but there's such a moral hazard that the countries in a position to provide the help uh, are worried that they could end up just causing greater problems later on if they don't have the conditions. So the conditions were put in place 10 years ago, and now uh, anybody who borrows from the European stability mechanism is going to face the same uh, reform requirements again. Given how controversial that is, it's pretty debatable whether or not it'll happen, but it may be that uh, countries that are getting squeezed financially don't have much choice and end up having to do it anyway. I think Italy is the country everybody is watching on that count. There's probably some others, but Italy's the one in the most dire straits at the moment. So let's see, that's it for the European wide stuff. Uh, Specific examples, let's see, Serbia. (laughs) Yeah, this had to do with a little bit of trouble the government got in. The government ruled that only its crisis staff, as led by Prime Minister Anna Bernabic, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, only these people should make announcements about the coronavirus 
and they warned of quote-unquote legal consequences if this was not observed. And that policy ended up being a big problem because it made it ambiguous about just what constituted uh, information related to the virus. And there actually was a journalist arrested for reporting on conditions in a hospital, citing with the, uh, you know, specifically because of this policy. And so the government ended up having to walk that back. Yeah, Serbian politics has been a little uh, interesting the past few years on account of the government in power. They've got a populist nationalist in right now who's running things. And uh, he tends to take a pretty hierarchical view of the role of government. You know, he kind of wants the government to take strong action. And in this case, it kind of came back to bite him. But to be fair, they did rescind the policy pretty quickly once it became apparent there was going to be a problem. So full credit there. Let's see. And everybody's favorite illiberal democracy, Hungary, also in the news here. Uh, the Hungarian parliament granted Viktor Orban, the prime minister, rule by decree. And they did so for an unlimited period of time. <laughs> oh, is he the king now? Pretty much, actually. That's the criticism being made by the opposition, that he's basically emperor of Hungary at this point. And that uh, given that the... Uh, emergency measures have no time limit. He could be forever if he just kind of feels like it. Uh, to be fair, the uh, uh, what's his party called? It's not Jobbik. That's the other one. Now, suddenly, Fidesz? I think it's Fidesz. Maybe that's it. Somebody, if we have any Hungarians in chat, please correct me on uh, what Victor Orban's party is. It's slipping my mind. But regardless, uh, his party is saying that it's okay because uh, if he does anything bad or... Uh, or for any reason, really, they can just rescind it by majority vote, which would be easy for them since they easily hold the majority of seats in parliament. So that's their excuse at this point for doing it this way. Uh, obviously, that's not going to satisfy the opposition since the opposition will say that the Victor Orban's party is under his thumb and isn't going to do anything that he doesn't want anyway. So if he really does want to just keep these powers indefinitely, hypothetically, he could. So... Two different perspectives on the issue there, but regardless, that's how Hungary has responded to the crisis. And that could be something, you know, depending on how Viktor Orban feels about these new powers, this could be something we're uh, hearing about six months to a year down the line. But we'll see. Let's see, Slovakia, Prime Minister Janez Jansa. Again, sorry if I'm butchering the name. Uh, Prime Minister Janez Jansa wanted to give police powers to track phones, use recognition, use facial recognition, and to allow the government to enter homes, all as part of measures to try to track uh, people who have the virus and try to make sure they're observing quarantine. This is a obvious debate that's propped up everywhere about uh, the balance between civil liberties and the need for the needs of public health. You know. Uh, if you need people to stay quarantined in order to mitigate the threat to public health, how do you enforce that? And in some cases, some countries are basically using the honor system. Uh, that's Sweden at this point, from what, I was, from what I've been reading. Uh, but other countries are using more coercive measures. Uh, we'll see some of those here in a minute. But there's also kind of a middle ground between which you can use some authority without becoming authoritarian. But there's a lot of debate about just where that threshold kind of really is. So in Slovakia, uh, the government wanted to do this, but then it backed off. Uh, there was a lot of pushback from political opposition. And so uh, just to illustrate, you know, this debate 
happened in Slovakia, and it seems the Slovakian body politic came down more on the side of civil liberties than on uh, coercive quarantine measures, or rather coercive enforcement of quarantine measures. Uh, Excuse me. Now, let's see. Albania, uh, they have a very strict curfew, apparently. Apparently, I was reading this was the strictest curfew in Europe, a 16-hour curfew on weekdays and a 40-hour lockdown at weekends. So that's uh, pretty all-encompassing there. I don't think anybody else has an explicit curfew of that wide-ranging. Albania is not a country you hear about a whole lot. It's, uh, it's been very quiet. Even during the Balkan Wars, they really weren't in the news much. Ethnic Albanians were in the news a lot during the Balkan Wars, but not Albania itself. They were pretty well behaved from what I remember. Just some quick trivia about Albania here. Albania had probably the weirdest history during the Cold War of almost, I think, really of any Eastern European country. Because like all the rest of, uh, almost all the rest of Eastern Europe, they ended up with a communist government after World War II. But they ended up operating relatively more independently of uh, the Soviet Union than others, kind of like Yugoslavia almost. And uh, one of the ways that manifested is that the Albanian government helped the Yugoslavian government support Greek communists in the Greek Civil War in the 1940s, which is not something that the Soviets wanted them to do. You know, the Stalin government, uh, I guess I should just say Joseph Stalin, since he pretty much was the government. Joseph Stalin was of the mind that Greece was in the British sphere of influence and that it was a lost cause and that it wasn't worth the effort or the diplomatic capital uh, that would have to be spent to try to prop up the Greek communists in the war. So the Soviets were actually pretty averse to intervention there. But Yugoslavia was not averse. (laughs) The Tito government there was all for it. And so they went against the Soviet government's policy and uh, supported them anyway. And and apparently Albania and Bulgaria uh, both helped them with that. So that kind of illustrates early on this independent streak on the part of the Albanians. They still hewed closely to the Soviet line, though. And other things. And uh, they did not break with the Soviets like the Yugoslavs did. Now, for those who don't know, Yugoslavia had a communist government during the Cold War, but they were not actually in the Eastern Bloc. They were not a Soviet satellite. They actually retained their independence. And in fact, they actually received funding from the Marshall Plan, which was uh, the big spending plan by the United States to distribute funds to European governments to help them uh, recover, to help their economies recover. Uh, Generally, almost all of the governments that received funding under the Marshall Plan were American-oriented, free market economies, democratic to to varying degrees. Uh, Portugal, obviously, under the Salazar government was not uh, democratic, but most of the others were anyway. But Yugoslavia was the only country that received those funds that was actually communist. And that just illustrates how independent they were uh, from Moscow. The Soviets, for their part, actually were eligible for Marshall funding, for Marshall Plan funding, uh, but they rejected it and they forbid any country that was in their sphere of influence from uh, applying for it, which is why none of it actually went to Eastern Europe, other than Yugoslavia anyway. So that's an example of Albanian independence. And then later on, you saw it again after the Sino-Soviet split. And this is interesting. Uh, Albania split from the Soviet Eastern Bloc. They actually left the Warsaw Pact uh, due to two reasons. One, because they sided with the Maoists in the Sino-Soviet split. You know, It wasn't just uh, about a strategic dispute between China and the Soviet Union over territory and 
you know, whatnot. It was also kind of an ideological dispute between an increasingly bureaucratic Bolshevism in the Soviet Union and uh, more, uh, how do I put this, more grassroots communism in uh, China under Maoism. Mao was all about mobilizing the people, and he tried very hard to institutionalize that in the Chinese government to a degree that the Soviets kind of didn't. So that ideological split there kind of saw a split between Maoists and Soviet-aligned communists in the rest of the communist world. Most of it sided with the Soviet Union, but Albania did not. (laughs) They actually sided with the Chinese, and they actually had a Maoist government through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, I believe it was. I think the Albanian dictator during that time was a guy named Hojas? Hozas? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Maybe somebody, uh, maybe an Albanian in chat can kind of help me with that. But uh, he was in power for a very long time, and he had this weird policy where he would just build bunkers. That was like the biggest, that was a big spending item for the government for, I think, several decades. I think he was worried about getting invaded or World War III or something. But for whatever reason, the communist government in Albania during the Cold War just covered the country in bunkers, just damn near everywhere. They're actually still there, kind of a tourist item now. Well, I can weigh in with some StarCraft knowledge. That's a cheesing <laughs> There you go. Well, this guy cheesed quite a bit. But the other reason that the Albanians split with the Soviets, besides the Sino-Soviet split, was also uh, Prague. Uh, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the Prague Spring, that was a uprising that occurred. Well, not even really an uprising. There was a government, com- the communist government in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s uh, ended up trying to implement some liberalizing reforms. You know, they tried to be less repressive, have somewhat o- more open politics, and to liberalize the economy a little bit. And the idea was not to reject communism. They were still communists, but they just wanted to, well, how did they put it? Communism with a human face. I think was the phrase that the government used at the time. And that did not go over well with the KGB or the Soviet Union. They did not like it one bit. And when the Czech government refused to back down, they actually just outright invaded them. The the Soviet Union and also the other satellite states around Czechoslovakia all participated in an invasion uh, that saw the Czechoslovakian government overthrown. So that was called the Prague Spring. And the Albanian government was also pressured by the Soviet Union to contribute troops to that mission, but they said no because they thought it was wrong. So already they're upset with the Soviets because of the issue with uh, the Sino-Soviet split in Maoism. This was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And after that, the Albanians left the Warsaw Pact outright and were not really aligned with the Soviet Union for the rest of the Cold War. So... Interesting foreign policy on the part of Albania during the Cold War. Just a weird little country during that period. But been pretty quiet since then. I don't think I can remember too much uh, trivia about them. I think the last thing I read about them was that their president was trying to spruce up the capital with a big uh, gentrification campaign, trying to inject some investment money. Anyway, that's big sidetrack. Just want to kind of offer a little color there to shake things up. <laughs> This kind of feels like I'm reading a laundry list, so I'm, I, I can't imagine that's all that exciting for people. So I'll try to add some detail here and there for you. All the laundry fans are going to be sad oh, now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> Actually, how, I love laundry lists. how are we doing? About halfway through. That's fine. Let's see. Uh, over in the UK, 
British government is going to intervene in the economy and they're going to cover 80% of workers' salaries for at least the next three months, up to $2,900 a month. So this is, I have a list of transfer payment policies here for different countries. That's one of them for the UK. Uh, Let's see, for Denmark, companies that would otherwise be forced to cut staff by 30% or lose more than 50 people. I'm sorry, what is this? Oh, okay. So firms that would otherwise be forced to cut staff by 30% or would lose more than 50 people will be covered for 75% of their wage bills for three months. So not fully covering uh, their wages there, but uh, enough of them to hopefully encourage companies to keep staff on, even if they're not actually doing anything. Now, let's see, Germany planning to expand a program to guarantee wages and prohibit eviction due to the lack of paying rent, obviously, between April 1st and September 30th. So a couple of months there and whatever that would be. That kind of ties into the forbearance conversation we had last week. Yeah, forbearance is going to be a big deal. That's a useful policy tool. It's not something you have to use instead of transfers and government action, but it's something that can complement it. Let's see. So that's transfer payments. Let's see. Iceland I also had here. I had a couple of notes. Iceland has one of the highest per capita rates of confirmed coronavirus cases, but that's because they've been doing really good testing. So they have a really good image of uh, where it is and who's infected and whatnot. They've actually tested more people per capita than anywhere else in the world, from what I read. And let's see. And apparently a lot of that is being done by a private medical research company based in Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland. And I have a quote from a journalist in Iceland named uh, Jelena Chirich. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Uh, The quote is, what that gives us in Iceland is somewhat of a clearer picture of how the virus is spreading through the general population, end quote. So testing, very important. Again, most of the data, well, a lot of the data that is relevant to public health officials and public health institutions stems from testing. So in so much as they have an image, a window of what's happening with regard to the virus. Testing is how they have that window. <clears throat> so it's very important, and Iceland has apparently been doing a very good job of that. So that could be a relevant case study for those of you who want to study this after the crisis is over, doing a comparative adva- comparative analysis of who's doing well, who's not doing well, etc. Iceland is apparently a paragon of uh, good testing. Not sure about what else they're doing. Maybe they're not doing other things as well, but Testing apparently is uh, definitely a positive for them. Let's see, Sweden, apparently the government, and this is a direct quote from an article, Government, the government is betting that its distinctive high trust culture means that individuals will act responsibly without being ordered to do so. So this goes back to what I was talking about before. Uh, some governments are just kind of using the honor system. They're setting out guidelines for quarantines, social distancing and whatnot, but they're not really enforcing them. They're just trusting the population to do it of its own accord. Because it's, well, they assume that it's intuitive that they would follow instructions in that vein. You know, it's in their self-interest to try to follow instructions regarding how to mitigate the spread of the virus. So we'll see how that works. (laughs) I'm sure, you know, those skeptical about uh, human nature and whatnot will probably not think highly of that action. But it's a kind of case study. We'll see what happens. And then there's Russia. Let's see. Daily life was continuing as normal until about mid-March. And that's when medical experts started questioning official statistics. 
which were apparently showing a suspiciously low number of infections. And after that, the government moved pretty quickly to start taking action. They closed the borders and announced a large economic stimulus plan, apparently. Now, the other interesting thing I read about Russia and what they're doing has to do with an app. And I think this is going to be something that ends up, uh, it's going to be something you're going to see in other countries or at least discussed in other countries, because I had never thought of this happening, but it actually makes a lot of sense. What they're doing is that they're enforcing their quarantine by using an app. And well, I guess to be fair, they're still developing the app, but this is something that they're going to do. Uh, They're going to enforce the quarantine with an app that will send you a code whenever you want to break quarantine to go and buy food or work or do whatever it is you need to do. And the idea is that they're going to prevent people from breaking quarantine by making it, well, by allowing police to demand that code. They're going to send it to you on your phone. And if you don't have the code, that means you don't have permission to be out and then you can be in trouble with the police. But if you do have the code on you because uh, you had proper authorization from the authorities, you won't have any problems. So that's the way that they're going to try to enforce the quarantine. And obviously that has a lot of uses outside of managing a quarantine, that would be a very effective way to try to control a population's movements for whatever reason. You know, maybe you have a hukou type residential permit system, or maybe you're trying to control housing or where people live, or maybe you just really, really want to have a totalitarian system of government that controls every minor detail of people's lives. Uh, Regardless, that's a potential way you can do that. So that's something to keep an eye on. That policy there may or may not be effective in managing the quarantine, we'll see. But I think that idea is something that's going to pop up again in other cases beyond uh, managing quarantine. That's that's an interesting uh, policy idea there, to my mind. And perhaps a worrying one. <laughs> yeah, there's the... Edward Snowden says that the powers granted to governments during the COVID period are going to stay after, and it's really bad. I wasn't surprised at all to hear no. that. But... Yeah, that's one of the big questions. You know, how many of these emergency powers that are supposed to be temporary are actually going to be temporary? We'll see. I personally don't think it's going to be a problem, and here's why. Most of the countries that uh, have governments that would abuse emergency powers like that already have authoritarian governments that are abusing emergency powers. You know, Hosni Mubarak over in Egypt, when he was still in charge, governed uh, Egypt for, I think, 30 years. And pretty much that entire time, Egypt was in a state of emergency. (laughs) And that was because the state of emergency allowed uh, the Egyptian government emergency powers that could be abused. So even, even though there was no real emergency in Europe, in Egypt, rather, they just maintained that for just decades. So I think uh, if you're worried about it, if you live in a, you know, if people are worried about it, well, I don't think people are worried about it because uh, the governments that are going to do it have already done it. I don't think there's any governments that uh, were not already authoritarian that were thinking of doing it. Hungary, maybe, you know, there's a couple borderline cases like that, but otherwise I don't think there's going to be too many cases like that. I think there's a deeper argument to be had for, emergency powers being used, new emergency powers that are innovative, you know, maybe like the one that I just talked about for Russia, uh, maybe powers like that end up being temporary, you know, they are withdrawn later, but end up being uh, raised again uh, in a different context. You know, this is a kind of test run 
for authoritarian policies uh, for some countries, uh, including democratic countries. And it may be that some political groups think uh, if they work, that they could be worth using uh, to try to deal with other policy issues, in which case we're going to have uh, some civil liberty debates politically uh, in the next few years. I don't know what that would necessarily look like. Uh, the United States is not exactly a leading innovator right now in responding to the crisis. And I think what innovations have occurred, like with Russia, are too authoritarian for American tastes and probably a lot of European tastes as well. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. But hypothetically, it could happen. You know, you never know. You can't predict the future. So there could be some new debate, some new political issue that emerges in which uh, somebody might want to do something like that. Anyway, moving on, the Netherlands. So the Netherlands, I was actually just reading this today. The, the Dutch government is trying to do something that they're calling intelligent lockdown. And basically, this goes back to the trade-off that we were talking about before between the economic cost of shutting down the economy and public health benefits. In the case of the Netherlands, they're coming more down on this in favor of the economy and trying to keep it open while trying to do what they can in terms of public health restrictions without impinging on the economy. You know, the idea here is to issue guidelines, issue quarantines, but to have a very broad definition of what constitutes, uh, you know, essential workers and to have relatively weak enforcement of quarantines and that kind of thing. You know, it's kind of like Sweden in a sense, in that they're giving a lot of discretion to the public and how they uh, enforce uh, restriction and how they observe restrictions and uh, health policy advice. Uh, let's see. Uh, for example, only those businesses, this is a quote, only those businesses that require touching like hairdressers, beauticians, and red light brothels have been forced to cease trading. Uh, schools, nurseries, and universities are closed until at least April, 28th of April. So public institutions of varying sorts, uh, those have been closed. So that's an example of the balance being struck. The private sector is being allowed to continue operating, but the public sector is being drawn back a bit. So this is sort of somewhere between, say, a case uh, where you shut down the economy completely and you just go full balls to the wall, quarantine, public health, and a case like Sweden, where it's very much more open source public health. We'll see how it works out. But again, an interesting case study you know, for a future comparative analysis. And we already talked about Hungary there. Georgia, is Georgia a part of Europe? I didn't really think so. But then sometimes I've seen it kind of flung in. Do you mean geographically or in terms of how Geographically. Like, would you consider that a European country? It's kind of an interesting question. I know they participate in the Eurovision, but that's not exactly a great, that's not a great measure. I don't think any uh, historians would really use that. It's, uh, it's vaguely European in the sense that it's Indo-European in language and some of the culture. It's Christian, but I, I have not historically associated it with Europe per se. But I guess it's one. Of, it's just I guess it's just one of those things where it's kind of at uh, kind of debatable. Well, regardless, I bring it up because I have Georgia in my Europe list here, and I, I kind of did that because I didn't know where else to put them. I didn't really think they belonged in the Middle East list, which I have coming up. But I didn't really have another list that they kind of neatly fit in. So I'm putting Georgia in the Europe list here. And let's see, uh, Georgia, according to my notes, is actually one of the countries, one of the has one of the governments that has done really well in responding to the crisis. And apparently they started taking action pretty early on at the end of February, uh, closing schools, for example, 
and conducting widespread diagnostic tests. Uh, thus far, at least from the time that I read the article, you know, that may have been a week or two ago, but from when I read that article, uh, Georgia had only 117 cases of COVID-19 and no deaths, which was pretty impressive. Obviously, that was probably in the early going, though. They probably got some by now, but uh, their response was pretty good, and it may be that they don't suffer nearly as much as uh, some other countries. Let's see, I had some more UK stuff. Actually, the rest of the Europe list is UK stuff. So we do you remember the emergency loan program that I talked about last week that the UK was issuing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so apparently they started issuing those loans. Well, they started providing the guarantees for those loans, but not a lot of takers. Not a lot of businesses were actually applying for the loans, which is a problem because that means that the government's policy is ineffective. You know, it's not having the desired effect of mitigating the economic damage. So the government has announced some changes to that program. For one, they're going to remove the rule that restricted restricted access to these government-backed loans to firms that uh, could not get a loan otherwise. Now, originally, the vision for the program was that uh, firms that could not get loans because of the crisis would be able to get them because of the because of this program, but only those firms were technically eligible. The trouble is there was some ambiguity about how to determine whether a given firm couldn't get a loan because of the virus or just because they were not credit worthy or what have you. So that may have contributed to a lack of uh, interest in the program. So they've scrapped that rule entirely. Uh, let's see, the treasury, however, has not capped the interest rate banks can charge. So that's going to be a problem because if you're not credit worthy, but you are technically, are technically eligible for, for the program, uh, it could be that uh, banks charge you through the nose such that you'd rather not take up the loan. Let's see. So that's two things there. They're uh, getting rid of that restriction, and but they haven't removed interest rate caps. Let's see. What else do I have here? Oh, they're going to revise the rule requiring loans over $250,000 to have collateral so that... Uh, Presumably, I didn't read the details about explicitly what they were going to do. I think they were still thinking about it. But uh, the idea there is that uh, if you want to get the loan you, over, if you want to get a loan that's government backed over $250,000, you got to have some asset or something you can put up as collateral. But that may have been uh, inhibiting interest in the loan. So they're going to probably ease that or maybe even scrap it. And let's see. And banks will be banned from asking company owners to guarantee loans with their own savings or property when borrowing up to $250,000. For those who were not being required to have collateral because they were asking for loans under 250,000 pounds. Sorry, I was saying dollars. Should have been saying pounds. Uh, for those under that 250k cap, banks will not be allowed to ask you for collateral in the form of savings or property, etc. So you shouldn't have to worry about that. Banks kind of looking to cover their asses there, (laughs) but that's obviously not helping the program. Uh, Let's see. Oh, got some Philippines notes in my UK notes. That's not supposed to be there. (laughs) Uh, Larger firms with a turnover of up to 500 million pounds will be eligible for more help uh, with state-backed loans of up to 25 million pounds available to firms with revenues of between 45 million to 500 million pounds. So a little extra sauce there for the big guys. Let's see. And the UK central bank is going to support, going to provide support. uh, Oh, no, they they issued a restriction. Uh, Any banks that have received funds from the UK government as part of uh, relief 
relating to the COVID-19 crisis, they're not going to be allowed to do stock buybacks or to issue dividends. So if you haven't received a, a bailout of any kind from the UK government and your bank, you can still do that stuff. But if you have received financial support, uh, you're going to have to ease off there in the short term. Shout out to the UK banks. In the chat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I could probably work on my wording there. Let's see. Uh, let me put this note in the right place first. Let's see if I can find it. Southeast Asia. There we go. Okay. Oh, where were we? Oh, the UK. Okay. Oh, yeah. This was an interesting article I read. This had to do with UK supply chains, and this kind of touches on agriculture. Uh, let's see. So logistical chains in the UK, as well as everywhere, are just kind of under strain. But I was kind of curious about some of the details, and this article provided them. There's been a big boom in demand at grocery stores and for medical supplies, and that's increased uh, stress on the corresponding logistics networks. But some of that has been offset uh, by the fact that restaurants have closed. Uh, so restaurants, you know, supply chains that have been serving restaurants, those have been redistributed uh, to serve grocery stores and uh, supermarkets and what have you. Uh, part of the reason that there's been the, actually the two are related, part of the reason that there's been a big jump in demand of, at grocery stores is specifically because restaurants have shut down. A uh, relatively decent sized proportion of the public in uh, the UK, in the article, according to the article I read anyway, eats out with some regularity. So now they can't really do that as much. So more people are cooking at home and in turn shopping more at supermarkets, hence the goose in demand. So that's part of the reason for the strain, medical supplies and demand for obvious reasons. Uh, let's see. Uh, so the redistribution. So of help to the logistical networks is the fact that nobody's driving. You know, Because everybody's staying at home, there's a lot less traffic. And that's significantly eased up congestion such that it's much easier for trucks working in log logistical supply chains to traverse uh, their route, you know, going from one place to the other. So that actually eases the pressure there. Also, the government is helping by making logistics personnel essential workers, kind of like what I was talking about earlier. What they're doing is that they're giving them priority in testing. So uh, logistical workers are disproportionately being tested to make sure that they're not infecting other logistics workers and also to make sure, you know, also to look after their own health. And the UK government is also allowing their kids to go to school. A lot of schools have been shut down, or at least uh, a lot of people have had access to schools restricted as part of quarantine, but uh, the children of logistical workers are apparently still being allowed to go to school so that their parents will be able to work. You know, They won't have to worry about staying home to watch them. So that's a snapshot of supply chains in the UK. An increase in pressure in some regards, but it's being relieved by a redistribution of logistical assets to other areas from other networks that have been uh, seen a collapse in demand and also less traffic and the government looking out for essential workers in so much as it can. So that's kind of what's happening in the UK. And that's probably pretty much what's happening in most countries at this point. It's pretty impressive really that the whole economy can pretty much shut down like it has in the US and that we can still just have food. It's pretty wild. Just gives you an idea of how yeah. amazing logistical networks are in the modern era. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. We have a great amount of resources in the U.S. Something to be thankful for. Oh, yeah. It's not distributed evenly, but 
think most people are <laughs> it's there it's there yeah what was it i think i used to talk with michael up sometimes about that is there's enough food in the world to feed everybody on the planet the only reason then that there's still starvation and famine is distribution it's a more of a logistical problem than it is a uh, production problem at this point hmm. and it's unfortunate but fortunately, the virus isn't spreading as much in rural areas for obvious reasons. There's just not a lot of person-to-person contact out there. So it's not as hard for farmers and other agricultural producers to continue producing, uh, well, agricultural produce as part of their job. So that's been that's uh, one of the small mercies of the crisis, I guess you could say. You know, At the very least, we're not starving. Pretty unprecedented, really. Yeah, But we'll see what happens. Okay, that's it for Europe. Next up is East Asia. So Taiwan is a case study in effective antivirus measures. And some of the things they did, and you know, this might be a bit repetitive for some people, uh, they began testing travelers coming from Wuhan on December 31st, uh, the last day of 2019. So they were very early in responding. Obviously, they have good reason to since they're right next to China, but nonetheless, early responses to their credit there. Uh, They set up a system to track those in self-quarantine, also useful, and ramped up production of medical equipment in January, which I'm sure a lot of other countries are wishing they'd done about now. Interesting side note, Taiwan has not yet resumed exports of the supplies in question, including surgical face masks. So that's another example of international competition for resources there. Let's see, South Korea, obviously another example of a country, of government doing a relatively good job being proactive. Uh, Mass testing in the case of South Korea, I think Korea has uh, done better in terms of mass testing than just about anybody, uh, other than Iceland anyway. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, South Korea tests more than 20,000 people daily at designated testing sites, and they've used isolation and widespread contact tracing to break chains of transmission. Uh, to some effect. And interestingly, I thought this was neat. They have drive-through testing. I'm not sure what facilities they have for that, but apparently they have a drive-through testing uh, system of some kind. Look, a lot of people, they're getting sick. You come over here, get tested, drive-through, we'll give you a candy (laughs) on the way out. Hey, it works. What can I say? Get a sticker for your shirt that says, I've been tested. Let's see, detailed tracking of the movements of coronavirus patients. That's something South Korean police were uh, used for. I don't know if we have any Koreans listening. I'm sure we must. I guess I could check the list. But one of the things I wanted to ask them is whether or not uh, people doing mandatory military service are being used to help deal with the crisis. I would imagine they would be, but I don't know for sure. It's kind of an intuitive source of manpower for the government, you know, just having all of these draftees. Uh, who normally just kind of sit around uh, doing this, that, or the other, well, why not use them to help enforce a quarantine? But that would be a use of the military uh, in civilian in a civilian role, so I'm not sure whether or not that would be allowed. So I would be curious if we have any Koreans listening, whether or not that's the case. Don't have to answer now, but just at your leisure. And let's see, let me finish East Asia, and then we'll dig into questions. I don't want to leave you guys hanging. Uh, what were we on? Oh, South Korea. Okay, that's pretty much South Korea. So then China. Already talked a little bit about China. Uh, Let's see. In China, the authorities have tightened already restrictive laws around layoffs, pushing the financial burden onto businesses. So they're not really mandating it per se, but 
They're trying to make it more difficult for firms to lay people off in order to encourage them to keep people on and keep paying them in order to mitigate unemployment. Probably isn't going to have much effect. The author of the article in question here uh, said that labor law is not really tightly enforced in China and hasn't been for a while. So there's not a lot of confidence here that they're going to start now. There is aid in place for many hard-hit enterprises, but a lot of political competition around who gets it. That's what happens when you have a authoritarian political system. Everything gets politicized and access to public resources in particular. So it becomes a contest between differing networks. I might I could make a note here, actually, because I was talking to somebody the other day about this. There's this notion in China of guanxi, and guanxi is like uh, networking. Or so I thought, you know, in net, in China, networks or personal networks are really important to navigating not only government, but also the economy in general. You know, if you want to do anything, it, you kind of have to have connections. Uh, it's just a prerequisite and just the nature of the political system makes that so. But Guanxi apparently uh, does not refer explicitly just to networks like I thought it did. I was It was explained to me recently that Guanxi actually has to do with uh, trading connections. Well, maybe I should elaborate on that. You know, you have uh, some connections, but you don't have anything you necessarily need. But you know somebody who does need something and they ask you if you could help them. And so you tell them, well, no, I can't help you, but I actually do know a guy who can. So apparently that uh, use of networks and use of nodes in somebody else's networks that's Guanxi, more specifically. I wasn't aware it had a more narrow definition like that, but that's what I was told anyway. Pretty interesting. And apparently that accrues. You know, if you give somebody a favor like that, then they owe you. And so then they owe you access to their network in a similar fashion. So it's a kind of social capital that you can build up over time. And if you have really good Guanxi, you can have a lot of that social capital available to deal with any problems you might have or to pursue uh, any ambitions or opportunities you may have. So that kind of networking and whatnot is very useful in Chinese society, but it's also a hindrance to good governance and a competitive economy uh, because it kind of pollutes everything. You know, every decision, uh, the awarding of contracts, et cetera, all of that just kind of comes down to who you know rather than who's best, who's most deserving. And apparently it's that which is happening there with regard to the aid that's being given to enterprises. The government wants to distribute aid to uh, enterprises, but it's having trouble getting the money through uh, corrupt networks of one sort or another. Let's see. Oh, a quick note here. Somebody last week was asking about uh, the collapse in subscriptions in China to uh, phones. Apparently it just imploded. And I didn't have a specific answer. I just I just said that I suspected it had to do with people uh, wanting to save money to kind of weather the crisis. But I did read an article uh, about that, specifically about the fall in subscriptions. And apparently it's attributed more to migrant workers. Apparently it's normal for migrant workers to have one phone for home and another phone uh, for the city that they're working in. And since there's not any work in the cities now, a lot of them have apparently dumped that uh, work phone in order to save money. So that's a more specific answer for that person if they're still listening. Okay, so we still got North America, South America, Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia to go. May or may not have time for it. <laughs> we'll see. But let's get through some of the questions. Uh, thank you, Strophium and Sea of Whiskey for facilitating. Let's see. Any update on hydro 
chloroquine. I'm not, I'm not super up on my chemistry, so I'm not very good at pronouncing that stuff. Any update on hydrochloroquine as treatment? I heard some small studies from Asia are saying it's promising. <clears throat> I've heard a little bit about this, but not much. The principal thing that I heard was that uh, Fauci, or Fauci, basically the leading medical professional in the U.S. government, uh, during an interview was asked that, and he said that he was skeptical. Uh, apparently, the study in question uh, was dubious in terms of research design, and so he's not taking it particularly seriously then. So that's the only thing that I've heard about that. Uh, apparently, some people in media have really been pushing it as a potential treatment that's very effective, but uh, I haven't heard much about it, which makes me suspicious that it's true. And uh, also, one of the leading experts in the U.S. is also skeptical about it, which just exacerbates my own skepticism. So I haven't heard anything concrete, so I kind of have to punt on the question in that regard. But what little I do know makes me think that it's probably not going to be all it's cracked up to be. Let's see. Next question. There's been evidence that ivermectin is actually helping cultures fight COVID. I would be curious to hear about the efficacy of that. I have no idea what ivermectin is, so I have to punt on that one too. <laughs> I haven't been following like the specific medical news hey, about it. What? Agent Smith, your new thoughts on this thing. Well, first of all, what's that? <laughs> really? All right. Well, I'll leave a, I'll open a tab here in Firefox so that I can... Uh... Look into that later. Ivermectin. Never heard of that. Medication used in, to treat many types of parasite infestations. Huh. Wouldn't think it would work on a virus, but eh, what do I know? Since the Federal Reserve buys up stocks and real estate from fiat currency that it prints out of thin air, real assets for fake, what are the repercussions for that and when? Uh, probably none. <laughs> I mean... The Federal Reserve and other central banks all over the world have been uh, pumping money as part of quantitative easing for most of the past 10, 15 years. It's probably more. Yeah, thereabouts. Pretty much since the financial crisis. They, over the past couple of years, they drew a lot of that down, but obviously now they've started it up again. But over the course of the past 10, 15 years, it didn't have seem to have much of an effect other than distorting stock markets. I sometimes wonder if people are really fully aware that stock markets no longer really correlate strongly with economic performance. They kind of trade on other things, and that probably has to do with all the excess liquidity that was injected in them by a quantitative easing of one sort or another. But there was no like massive inflation. You know, one of the topics in economics is missing inflation. You know, they, you would have expected inflation because of all that uh, increase in money supply, but it didn't really happen. If there had been, I wouldn't have worried about it too much because the Federal Reserve and other central banks have the ability to pretty quickly contract uh, money supply if they need. You know, In the same way that they can issue money uh, by accrediting bank accounts uh, at the Federal Reserve or at the central bank in question, uh, they can also remove that and get that money out of the system pretty quickly if it starts causing problems. So that's a pretty powerful tool on their part. I'm not too worried about them abusing it either. Although that's debatable, I guess. But yeah, I don't see there being a lot of repercussions to it just based on the evidence we have. You know, the last time they did it, nothing much happened. And I don't know that there will be much happening this time. But you could argue that uh, so much it's been done for so long and to such a high degree that maybe we're going to reach a critical mass this time. 
that's possible. You know, you never know. One of one of the things we've talked about on here before is that uh, the trouble with the modern economy is that it's changed so much from anything we've had before that we don't have any precedent we can look at to compare it to. We have no data we can really analyze to understand it and try to predict what it's going to do and how it's going to react to stimuli. And that means that we're kind of flying blind <laughs> to a large degree. And that makes it really hard to forecast what's going to happen with regard to, say, COVID-19 or quantitative easing or, you know, anything like that. You know, it's all just kind of a question mark at this point until we can see more data. And one of the tricky things is that we may never have enough data because the structure of the economy is continually changing because of the rate and pace of technological innovation. You know, it could be that we're in a constant state of churn for the next few decades and that uh, understanding the economy is less about understanding how it actually works and more getting a meta understanding of how to live in a constantly evolving economy. But that's a whole nother discussion. You know, the point, <laughs> the point for now is uh, it's hard to predict what's going to happen because of quantitative easing now. Um, but given what evidence we have, I'm skeptical it'll be too big a deal. I think we'll be able to manage it. Let's see here. Next one, has there been any reports of how nations that rely heavily on imports like Nauru and Monaco have been dealing with the current pandemic and its disruption to trade? I mean, the principle, the, some of the biggest trade items for small countries like that are generally things like agriculture. Well, I guess more for Monaco. You know, Monaco prob probably has to import almost all of its food from France. But beyond that, I don't think... Uh, <clears throat> Well, obviously, there's been a collapse in tourism. For those who aren't familiar with Monaco, it's a tiny country uh, in the southeast of France. It's you can barely see it on a map, but it is technically an independent state, and I think it's I think it still has a king or a duke or something. But its principal economic activity is uh, gambling. You know, it's kind of like a eh, it's like a really classy Las Vegas, classier Las Vegas. Let's put it like that, and. Uh, yeah, they've had a major problem with the fallen tourism since that was a major economic driver. But beyond that, I don't think they're struggling too much. I haven't heard anything. That's the real answer to the question. But uh, I wouldn't expect there to be too many problems beyond tourism just because uh, agriculture, like we were talking about before, hasn't been that affected uh, by the crisis thus far. So they're probably good on that count. And the it's a pretty wealthy statelet so to speak. So they've probably got the money to kind of tide workers over and to maintain access to needed goods of one sort or another. So I think they're doing all right in Monaco. Uh, but uh, Nauru, uh, for example, I haven't heard anything from them, but I think they're largely self-sufficient at this point. I think most of their food they fish for. Nauru is kind of a weird case, though, because they actually used to have a lot of money because of exports of uh, bird shit, actually. I think it was phosphate. That's how it looks on the official record. You know, they exported phosphate. But phosphate on Pacific Islands is, uh, it builds up on the islands over the course of millennia as birds just shit on the island and it accumulates over time into these big masses that you can actually mine. And so that's where the phos a lot of that phosphate from Pacific Islands came from. And Naru had so much of it that they were able to get rich off of it. I hope I'm getting this right. I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but... And they had so much money coming in from royalties from the mining company that nobody really had to work that much. And, you know, people bought cars and houses and whatnot. But then the government, uh, well, they actually had a rainy day fund that they were building up for when the phosphate ran out. But then somebody stole it. 
<laughs> some corrupt leader, president, the president, I think, actually just funneled it all to uh, secret bank accounts. And when the phosphate ran out, then the government had no money with which to try to uh, help the people deal with it. And so the economy collapsed and now it's a little bit post-apocalyptic in a sense. You know, there's all these nice houses and nice cars that are kind of littered around the island that nobody can afford anymore and that nobody uses. And you know, they're just in various states of disrepair. But I think uh, fishing is the big thing. They also have money coming in from uh, Australia's detention centers that they built there for immigrants. You know, Australia has a pretty strict policy of restricting immigrants uh, who come in illegally. So anybody who does or who needs to get processed as a refugee or whatnot, they didn't really get sent to a detention facility on some island in the Pacific. Nauru is one of them. I think they've got another one somewhere. That's been a pretty controversial topic in Australian politics over the past couple, uh, over the last 10, 15 years or so. But as for countries that are what that heavily rely on imports, they seem to be doing okay. I think food is the main one that everybody's worried about. Well, I mean, nobody's worried about it, but that's the main one that governments should be worried about. But that's coming in just fine. Other than that, I guess the other type of import you would have is manufacturing goods, but a lot of those are intermediate goods. That's kind of gumming up supply chains a bit. But at this point, you don't really need to produce that much because nobody's buying anything. So that's not too much of a problem either. Services sector, I mean, if you're a tourism dependent, then you're getting hammered right now. You know, Thailand being a case in point, although that's not actually an import. Technically, uh, tourism is an export. If you have people coming into your country and spending money, technically that counts as an export. But a lot of people in the services sector are in like the tech sector and they can work from home. So they haven't been too impacted. People in the services sector who are in like professions, it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, lawyers, doc obviously doctors are very busy, but uh, lawyers can do some of that from home. And then there's like... Uh, I guess you could also call them professionals, like hairdressers, uh, barbers, you know, these kinds of people. They're getting hurt. That's definitely, not, it hasn't been great for them since nobody's coming out and using their services. So they're definitely getting hurt hard, but that's not really something you import. That's very much something that's just in place in the economy and consumed domestically, generally at a local level. So I don't think imports, I don't think import dependent economies are really getting hurt too hard. That's my intuition anyway. And, you know, if anything, if, if you're uh, one of the big things that import dependent economies import is actually energy. And as I'm sure everybody has noticed, oil is pretty cheap right now. <laughs> you know, normally uh, you have to import a lot of uh, oil to for your manufacturing sector or, you know, for gasoline, for transportation. But since uh, a lot of that has collapsed, demand for oil collapsed and the price is down. So if you're an import uh, dependent economy, you don't have to worry about that, at least. Got to worry about a lot of other things, but not that. So yeah, I don't think they're struggling too badly right now. It's a it's a weird kind of crisis in that sense. You know, there's massive economic pain being felt, but it's being felt amongst very particular sectors of the economy and amongst very particular countries. Let's see. Has there been any has has there been any reports of how nations that rely? Oh, that's the one I just read. Can America change our response at this point? Is it too late? Clarification, could could we do mass testing? Helps if my computer doesn't fall asleep. <laughs> can, can America change our response at this point? Or is it too late? Could we do mass testing like in other countries? Um, it's never too late. 
because that's I mean even after we weak even after we reach peak caseload uh, there's going to be a period when it's falling new cases the number of new cases is falling but it's still relatively high and that could drag out you know and it, even after that even after we no longer have a high number of cases you know so long as there's a small number there's going to be uh, a debate that's uh, a debate about whether or not to end quarantine probably a lot of places will keep quarantine in place until it's very until the number of new cases is very very low just to be safe so that process is going to take a number of weeks and uh in that sense yeah it's still worth it uh to try to go all out to produce as many medical supplies as possible and to try to do mass testing if possible uh, medical supplies is useful just because uh, you can still try to catch the the ebb when it's going down, but you still have a high number of cases. You still could save some lives there. And it's also useful in foreign policy because if you have a surplus of medical supplies, you can start distributing that out. Maybe not the most likely under the current administration, but I would hope that they would try to do that. Uh, other than that, uh, the other one was doing mass testing. That's still going to be a good idea because there's still that issue of secondary outbreaks, like what we were talking about earlier. Uh, that's going to be a big problem. Even if we don't necessarily see it in uh, countries that had the virus earlier than we did in the United States, uh, mass testing will help ease uh, concerns about whether or not there will be secondary outbreaks and will build confidence. You know, so that'll, that'll complement uh, the general increase and improvement in confidence that'll come from falling numbers of cases. So that's still definitely a good idea and something that we should probably push to do. We probably won't because <laughs> I don't think any, I don't think anybody has the capacity to do it at this point. I mean, uh, certain states will push for it, but some states haven't really had the leadership or the focus for it. And the federal government has, you can say the U.S. government has been a lot of things, but I don't think you can say it's been focused. So I wouldn't look there for leadership, but the question is not, what will we do? Can we do it? Yes, we can. It's still technically possible. It just takes will and leadership and organization, all of which are things that we've not had for the past couple of years or even the past couple decades, depending on how you want to frame it. And unfortunately, that's where we are. But yeah, technically it can be done. What news has come from Kashmir? They've been locked down since August last year, correct? Yeah, they've been locked down Um for those who haven't followed that closely, uh, the Indian government pulled a sneaky one. Uh, they ended Kashmir's status as a state in India, and they made it a union territory. It would, To give you a rough analogy, it would be like if the federal government of the U.S. just decided that, I don't know, Nevada was going to be a territory like Puerto Rico. So it wouldn't be a state anymore. It would just be a commonwealth like Puerto Rico or Guam or something like that. That's roughly equivalent to what uh, the Indian government did with Kashmir. Kashmir was a state. Now it's just a territory and it's going to be governed directly from the Indian government. It's still going to have a legislature, but the executive branch isn't going to be elected anymore uh, or rather isn't going to be chosen by the legislature. So the Indian government knew that would be controversial because Kashmir obviously has a lot of problems uh, with the Indian government going back several decades uh, the Kashmiri people are mostly Muslims, and uh, there was a lot of them wanted to be a part of Pakistan. Just how many is debatable. Uh, Pakistan, for its part, forcibly tried to take over Kashmir because they thought as an Islamic territory, it should have been made part of Pakistan 
after partition in 1947. Well, the prince of Kashmir in 1947 was actually a Hindu, and he didn't want to be part of Pakistan. And as a prince and leader of what was called a princely state, uh, princely states in British India were states within uh, British India that had autonomy and more or less self-government. And the solution to how India should be made independent, which was a big debate, it wasn't intuitive that it would just all become independent all at once. There was questions about whether it should be carved up according to ethnicity, caste, religion, just a bunch of different things. There were a lot of different ways India could have been divided, but the one that was settled on ended up being religion for a lot of reasons. That's a whole that's a whole conversation unto itself. But because uh, Islam, the Islamic parts of India were to be made part of uh, an independent Pakistan, there was a debate about what would happen with, say, Kash- states like Kashmir. But part of the independence deal reached with the British is that princely states, separate from the rest of British India, would decide on their own whether they would join India, join Pakistan, or be independent. And the Prince of Kashmir kind of uh, waffled on that. He kind of indicated he wanted to be independent, but he didn't really commit to it. And then Pakistan kind of de facto invaded. I have to say de facto because they actually paid a bunch of uh, Pashtun militiamen to go and invade for them instead of using their army. Although to be fair, independence had just happened and they didn't really have much of an army available to them. In fact, one of the weird things about the first Indo-Pak war, which which, uh, broke out because of this invasion, is that both Pakistan and India's armies in 1947 were actually still led by British officers. Uh, I think the British government tried to set it up so that the British officers didn't end up fighting each other, uh, but technically the British were still kind of nominally in control of their respective militaries, or at least a lot of positions within them. Interesting position for the British to be in, suffice to say. But anyway, the Pakistanis invaded, the Indians retaliated, um, well, I shouldn't say retaliated per se. I have to be specific. The Prince of Kashmir requested Indian help in resisting the invasion. And a condition of Indian help was that Kashmir allow itself to be annexed by India. So the Prince of Kashmir said yes. The Indian military moved in. The war started. And then it's just kind of been that way ever since. The There was a peace agreement signed. And uh, the front line at the time of the peace agreement became known as the line of control. And that became the border between Pakistan-occupied Kashmir and India-occupied Kashmir. And after that, it was actually pretty quiet for a long time, other than uh, the second Indo-Pak war, when the Pakistanis did the same shit again, pretty much. Trying to raid raid Kashmir with uh, Pashtun militiamen and pretend that they're locals who are rising up against the evil Indians and trying to get Kashmir into Pakistan where it properly belongs. That didn't work. They lost that war. And then things were quiet for a while until the Pakistanis started supporting revolutionaries in Kashmir. Uh, Some people who were just tired of uh, the ever-present, well, some of them were just ideologues who wanted to be part of Pakistan. It was kind of different things. But regardless, the Indian government responded by moving a huge amount of its military into Kashmir. Like there's a very high number. I think it was something like maybe, I think at one point it was as many as maybe 500,000 troops were in Kashmir which is just crazy high, <laughs> suffice to say. It was quite a few. But martial law was declared as part of that movement. And people in Kashmir really have not liked that because it's led to abuses by the military, abuses by the government. You know, emergency powers are really easy vectors for abuse of power. 
you got to be really careful with those. And uh, unfortunately, there have been a lot of abuses in Kashmir, and that fed the that fed the insurgency in Kashmir, and led to uh, what's called a low intensity conflict. Basically, you know, hit and run attacks, terrorist attacks, what have you. And I think around two thousand, it quieted down again. But then over the past couple of years, that's kind of started up again, and that's where it was. And the prime minister. The Indian government under Prime Minister Modi, which just got elected not long ago, or re-elected, I should say, not long ago, had long been kind of tired of the Kashmir issue. You know, it was never really, it just was kind of a running sore. There was no obvious solution. The pack, you know, there were no real talks between Pakistan and the Indian government on what to do about it. Uh, people in Kashmir were upset at the status quo, didn't like the Indian government. You know, the low intensity conflict was continuing. So what, what the hell do you actually do about it? So basically the government of uh, Modi just kind of threw up its hands and said, fuck it, we're taking control. (laughs) We're just going to directly govern Kashmir and we're going to implement the reforms that we think are needed to uh, open up the economy and hopefully lead to some economic development. You know, they think that if there's economic development, people will have a stake in staying a part of India and that'll take the wind out of the sails of the insurgency and then things will calm down and then Kashmir can just become a normal territory. I might add here that this is a charitable interpretation of the government's move. There's also a lot of criticism from the opposition that it was just a craven political move meant to uh, build political, get score political points with the uh, with their political base. There's a lot of nationalists who vote for Modi's party, the BJP, and uh, they think Kashmir should be dealt with more directly and harshly. And so there's a sense then that this was just a move to try to fire up the crowd, basically, and just appease them. A political move, shall we say, rather than a substantive improvement on the status quo, uh, good governance, as it were. So anyway, that's a, sorry. I mean, just as a reminder, we have a lot of nice new guests this evening. The viewership is quite a bit higher than a lot of other Sundays for the live stream segment of this. We're not trying to get you to think a certain way about things, and we're also not endorsing different political actors, parties, or moves. Sometimes things are laid out in a sort of dry format. It doesn't necessarily mean that he is stating uh, that he's in favor or against certain things. We're just trying to lay out some facts for you, and then you can use your own smart brain and critical thinking to uh, figure out what it all means if you want to do that. So yeah, typically we're just here to talk about the facts, lay out the news. I know some people will hear Agent Smith talk about something and be like, why is he not mad about that? He's just trying to focus on the facts. (laughs) If you feel like being mad is the best course of action, you may do so, but you will hear no shouting in this segment. (laughs) Yeah, that's our ideal. That's uh, that's the standard by which we kind of try to hold ourselves here. But yeah, that's just to give some background on Kashmir. Um, When the government moved into Kashmir and made these changes, it knew that they would be controversial. So in order to try to mitigate the likelihood of a massive uprising, you know, uh, a shift from a low intensity conflict to an outright insurgency, as it were, uh, the Indian government shut off the internet pretty much. They locked down the Kashmir and made it virtually impossible for journalists to do their job, made it very difficult for information to come into or out of the province. And anybody who uh, had a business dependent on the internet was pretty much destroyed. Uh, communication was also significantly inhibited, you know, phone lines, what have you were restricted, you know, use of phones was restricted phone communication. It was uh, just a total blackout for a long time. Uh, 
Now, for those wanting an update on that, the government has been slowly rolling that back. It's uh, not something that they've done. It's not something they're going to do all at once. You know, they've slowly introduced access to the internet, but they started by only allowing access at certain points so that they could see who is using it. And uh, they were still restricting, I think, smartphone use and phone network usage. But they've eased up on that as well. So there's more access than there used to be, but it's still hit or miss. And I think it's still something that's, uh, there's still something that are rolling out time because they're still concerned about uh, violence in Kashmir. Now, let's see. Because of COVID-19, there's almost no news about anything else. Is there anything non-COVID-19 related news that is important to mention? Yes. Yeah, I had a bunch of stuff from earlier. And we were talking about, uh, I have older news that's relevant that we never got to. And then I have more recent stuff that I talked about last week. You know, for example, uh, there's some suspicion that Iran might be covering up nuclear activity and its nuclear program. And there's an outside chance that they're making the uh, fabled breakout to a nuclear weapon. But it's not really clear how true that is. We don't have enough evidence, but what evidence we have is increasingly suspicious. Didn't they try to show off one before and it was like actually paper mache? <laughs> not just like saying that it was a, a poorly constructed nuke, but it was like totally fake, not even... I don't think paper. Iran ever did that. Nothing comes to mind. There was a... Uh, there was a weapon that the Bush administration during the Iraq war put on display in a press conference, trying to use it as uh, evidence that the Iranians were supporting Iraqi insurgents. Uh, I guess that was technically true though. It wasn't fake. It's just nobody cared at that point because a lot of people didn't trust the government after a couple of years of the insurgency. But uh, that's the only thing that kind of comes to mind. I don't think Iran ever tried to front tried to pretend that they had one when they really didn't. Maybe it was them showing off some space. That could be. I saw some, some posts. Oh, you know what? A country trying to, I think I know what you're talking about. I think I might remember this. This was uh, what years ago, the Iranian government was uh, issued a video that just showed some of their ballistic missiles because, uh, Yes. They had a ballistic yes. missile program that they were developing parallel to their nuclear weapons program. Because, you know, if you have nuclear weapons, that's great, but they're not going to be very useful if you don't have a platform with which to deliver them, which is generally long range missiles. Mm-hmm. So, in order to try to, you know, beat their chest a little bit, uh, you know, rattle their saber, as it were, they uh, issued a video showing the launch of some of their ballistic missiles. Well, some people noticed that there was something fishy about the video, or maybe it was photographs. I don't quite remember. And what they found is that it had been photoshopped. And it turned out that one of the launchers had actually failed. It failed to launch. And so the Iranian government photoshopped a missile being launched from that particular area, from that, from that missile launcher. And uh, that made the rounds on the internet. <laughs> Suffice to say, that was the source of was- Look out, world, Iran has learned how to use Photoshop. (laughs) Not very well, unfortunately for them. But yeah, Iran was in the news. That That was a big one. The Russian government is trying to push through constitutional changes. We talked about that last week. Gosh, what else? I mean, the COVID-19 is the big one for a lot of developing countries right now because they're trying to muster what resources they have to try to deal with it. And 
they're just facing very difficult policy trade-offs at this juncture. Uh, other news, what else is going? Obviously, the U.S. election is still going on, but there's not a lot of news on that because the uh, I think the primaries and caucuses have pretty much been delayed a month in order in response to the crisis so that people aren't congregating in voting centers. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got some stuff on Canada, but I'm saving that for later. Yeah, that's all that's kind of coming to mind. India has been in the news because of the Kashmir stuff and the uh, that attempt, the CAA bill, you know, the attempt to uh, deport Muslims because they're not citizens, even though they might well be citizens. We already talked at length about that, too. But I, and I think that's still a thing that they're still trying to do. But it's been overshadowed by the virus at this point. I don't, I don't think it's a high priority for the government right now. What else is going on? China and the U.S. still have their little trade war going on. That's not going anywhere. I've got notes on that. I've got notes on the, uh, the shutdown of the rail network in Canada. I think that's over now, but that's uh, still something I'll get. If we have time, I'll try to talk about that later as well. That had to do with the uh, oil pipeline and some Native American groups. I'm sure any Canadians listening know exactly what I'm talking about, but I, I think it kind of got covered up in the news a little bit by other events. Is anything going on? Australia was in the news. I think there's still some uh, dramatic weather stuff going on down there. It's still on fire and flooding and whatnot, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> That's also been overtaken in the news somewhat, so I haven't heard as much about that. It's a struggle when you're on fire and flooded at the same time. Hanging yeah, well, to elaborate on that, the, the elaboration we got from Chad on that is that the flooding is in the north and the fires are more in the south. If I remember correctly. Yeah. That's about all I'm remembering. I'm sure there's other stuff though. It's just been so long <laughs> since I've read uh, other, other things. So, you know, some of the other plot lines, so to speak, and in international news and whatnot have kind of been overtaken. So they're not fresh in my memory, but we'll try to get to that. I'll try to finish the uh, regional updates here first, since I've got so many of those, just get that out of the way. All right, so to get back to the regional responses, let me just check. Yeah, uh, North America. All right, so how's North America doing in response to the crisis? So Canada is another case study uh, in effective governance and uh, an effective response. In January and February, way back when, Canada began setting up the infrastructure to conduct tests and, and contact tracing. Part of that had to do with their experience during the SARS outbreak in 2003. Canada was the only country outside Asia to report deaths from SARS back in the day. So apparently the Canadian government had uh, has some precedent that they can kind of look back on and they did some preparatory work that put them in a better position to respond this time. Let's see, the criteria for who can be tested for COVID-19 in Canada is not as limited as the United States. And also they have a well-funded public health care system. That's uh, the article I read made that point, a well-funded public health care system. I think the U.S. health care system is also well-funded. It's just not well-distributed, shall we say. I think that's more the issue. But regardless, the fact that Canada has a national health care system uh, and the fact that they have less restrictive, had less restrictive testing, all of that kind of works in their favor. So that's also part of the reason that they've been uh, more effective in containing the, containing the virus. 
Let's see. Canada was also in the news recently because they were up happy with the United States trying to stop 3M from exporting uh, ventilators, I think, to Canada. That's uh, something the U.S. done. That's also in my notes here coming up. But uh, Trudeau kind of badmouthed the U.S. government a little bit, a little bit, and then kind of did nothing because there's not a whole lot they can do. He did implicitly threaten the United States. He did say that if the United States cuts off exports of needed medical supplies, then the Canada might retaliate. He didn't put it in so many words. What he said is that uh, trade works both ways. And that's uh, kind of have to read between the lines, but in, dip, in, dip, in diplomatic speak, that's generally considered an implicit threat. So let's see, that's Canada, uh, U.S. stimulus bill. I had a couple more notes on that. There's something called the Paycheck Protection Program. Apparently businesses that keep workers on their payroll for eight weeks or that promise to rehire laid off workers will have any federal loans they take on forgiven. I haven't heard much else about that since I read about that, so I don't know the details, but apparently uh, businesses have that at their discretion or have that as an available option for themselves. Uh, let's see, some other stuff about the stimulus bill. I still need to read a lot more about it. I want to read more about the political debate that happened uh, while it was still being negotiated. But some notes I did have on it. Uh, it was temporarily held up by politics around uh, greater unemployment benefits. There were some conservative senators that argued that the increase in uh, unemployment benefits being proposed was too great and would incentivize people to quit their jobs. So there was a lot of pushback on that, as you can imagine. Uh, eventually, they just, uh, that is to say, the Senate just allowed them to have a vote on the amendment that they were proposing to reduce unemployment benefits, and that failed. So problem solved. But that uh, took up some time and uh, delayed passage of the bill a little bit. Let's see, there was an expansion of unemployment aid. Uh, the expansion of unemployment aid included payments for the first time to people who are self-employed or work in the gig economy. Pretty necessary given that uh, temp workers and gig economy workers are a big part of the workforce now. Let's see, uh, we already talked about direct payments. There's also $500 billion for companies specifically uh, it includes loans to hard hit sectors so airline company etc whenever you hear about bailouts in the economy for corporations that's about 500 billion dollars that's going to that there's also 350 billion dollars in loans being made available for small businesses as part of the stimulus bill and then also part of the bill apparently 100 billion dollars for hospitals and related health systems so that's kind of a gimme yeah, intuitive there so those are some things the U.S. is doing. The U.S. also, oh, we talked about this last week. Uh, that employment data was actually weekly data that we talked about last week. It was 3.3 uh, million unemployment claims that broke the record. So it might not surprise you then, Neuro, we broke the record again this past week. Oh, I saw the graph. Uh, there was one, uh, I don't know if I could find the link for it. They did a graph of it with the GameCube theme. It's orders of magnitude different. <laughs> what we're talking about here, it's not just like beating the previous yeah. uh, high score of unemployment by a little bit. Yeah. This is weird. Yeah, it makes everything that came before look like a flat line. <laughs> That's just how high it is. Well, last week we broke the record for un weekly unemployment claims with 3.3 million. This past week, there was a further additional 6.6 .6 million. That's the new record. 
pretty dramatic stuff. Man. I would guess a lot of that's going to bounce back. You're talking about the U-shaped recovery. That's the hope. What is the difference between a U-shaped recovery and a V-shaped recovery? So let's say that uh, the whole thing lasts a month. Quarantine lasts a month, and then the government gives the all clear. Let's then assume that, uh, well, at that point, businesses could start hiring again in anticipation of a return in demand as people you know, leave quarantine and start buying again. So under that model, under that theory, uh, economic activity should increase rapidly once the quarantine ends, once the crisis passes. That's the V-shaped recovery. A U-shaped recovery says that once the all clear is given, then it's going to take businesses a while to get back up to speed. It's going to take a while for that demand to actually manifest and recover. And in that case, it's going to be a while for businesses to have the same cash flow that they had before, in which case it's probably going to be a slower recovery. It's going to be a slow return to previous pre-crisis levels of production rather than a sharp return. So that's the difference between V-shaped recovery and U-shaped recovery. Mm. There's some pessimists who are arguing for an L-shaped recovery where the economy just kind of dies. <laughs> that's the, That crowd thinks there could be a long-term depression looming. I don't know how that's a recovery, but <laughs> yeah, well, not, fair point. Not really a recovery, but uh, that's that's what they're predicting, and uh, they cite the possibility of secondary outbreaks causing intermittent quarantines, basically forcing it, the economy to shut down again intermittently, as well as just uh, endemic bankruptcies and insolvencies amongst private sector entities. Those two factors combined, they think, would. Uh, be enough to cause a depression since then you don't have any businesses really employing anybody. I'm a little skeptical myself that's going to happen. And in general, the consensus seems to be for some degree of U-shaped recovery and not some grand depression, but it's still possible that there could be a depression depending on the virus and depending on uh, how effective government responses are in trying to uh, prevent insolvencies and bankruptcies amongst the private sector. That's definitely something to watch. I think people are pretty resilient. One thing that is forgotten is that when people are comfortable for long periods of time, their resilience is not tested. So sometimes you feel like they're not going to be able to handle it. But when shit hits the fan and they rise to the occasion, it's like, oh, wow, they're actually pretty tough and they bounce back. I'm an optimist. I am very aware of that. <clears throat> if there's a situation, there are a lot of different outcomes. I'm more likely to think that things are going to get better over time. Well, that's useful in an economy since uh, more optimism means more confidence. More confidence means people are more likely to be risk tolerant and lend more and uh, take more risks in terms of forming businesses and making investments. So if more people were like you, Nero, we would probably be okay. Unfortunately, a lot of people are not. Well, the people in general and I think uh, behavioral economics has shown this. People in general are pretty risk averse. So that's something that, uh, you know, that's just kind of the nature of the beast. But let's see, one more note on the United States. I talked a little bit about this earlier. Uh, there's a company in the United States called 3M that manufactures just all of the things. They're a huge conglomerate and they manufacture many, many products. Uh, among them are masks, specifically medical masks that are very much in demand right now. So the Trump administration has used the Defense Production Act to try to push 3M 
well, I guess mandate, since that's how the act is structured, to mandate that 3M produce masks for the United States and not export them. And this has led to some drama over the past uh, week or so, because there's been talk about uh, the United States forcing 3M and other suppliers to return masks to the United States, even after they've been ordered uh, by actors in other countries. So Germany was the big one because there was about 200,000 N95 respirators, 130,000 surgical masks, and apparently 600,000 gloves, all of which uh, had been ordered by a German company, I guess, or maybe the German government that was never specified. And these supplies were in Bangkok and were then, quote unquote, confiscated, according to the German government. And uh, they say that they're assuming that it was the U.S. government uh, that facilitated that and that the supplies are probably on their way back to the U.S. So there was a big hue and cry in Germany about that. But since then, there was a German official who came out and said that it might have been more to do with supply chain issues. So maybe not the Trump administration. So that's kind of a non-starter, and that's kind of a false alarm, perhaps. Uh, But the Canada case was real. And in that case, the Trump administration explicitly asked them, and we know this because 3M executives came out and told the media about it. The Trump administration explicitly asked them to stop exporting N95 respirators uh, to Canada and Latin America. So 3M apparently refused to do that, but the Trump administration is, it, there's, there's, there's a lack of clarity here on my end because I wasn't able to kind of infer in the article I read about this, whether the Trump administration was forcing them not to export or was asking them not to, and that 3M was refusing to. I've, I read somewhere that 3M was having to comply with the order and was not exporting them, but I'm not sure what happens, what exactly is happening there. It's a little ambiguous. Uh, maybe somebody in chat can clear that up. I'm sure there's some people following that more closely than I am. But anyway, regardless, this is pretty textbook beggar thy neighbor stuff. I mean, it would be a lot better if the United States government would cooperate with some of these other governments here rather than trying to compete for resources, because it would probably lead to more resources being made available for everybody. But as is, that doesn't seem to be in the wheelhouse of the administration right now. So that's a snapshot of North America. I think I've still got 40. Okay. So let's see, South America. Um, Just two, I've just got some notes on Argentina and Brazil here. Uh, The Argentine government, for its part, has begun to organize social assistance programs and efforts to support the most vulnerable populations. So no shock there. Argentina, the Argentine government has been pretty big on social programs over the past couple decades. So no surprise, that's a go-to. Uh, Let's see. Argentina is particularly vulnerable because almost 40% of the Argentine workforce is in the informal sector, which kind of surprised me. I wasn't aware it was that high. I I would have thought it would only have been that high during one of Argentina's various economic crises, but I guess technically they're still going through one. But uh, having so many people in the informal sector means that you can't really qualify for stuff that uh, would normally be distributed according to your job or official identification or you know, what have you. It might complicate things a bit. Uh, let's see. The government also has announced its intention to provide a 10,000 peso spot payment to as many as 3.6 million informal heads of households. Uh, plans are being made for distribu- distributing income support payments by means of cell phone transfers. It's an administrative thing. It's just kind of easier that way. Transferring money to lots and lots of people is actually pretty difficult, at least if you're trying to do it without corruption funneling a bunch of it off. You know, if you don't want people to steal it, 
if you want to make sure it gets in the right hands, then you've got to have a good mechanism by which to actually distribute the money. In the United States, we're using bank account information that uh, was submitted as part of people's previous tax payment information. Uh, in Argentina, apparently, they're looking at phone transfers. And this is actually something you see in a lot of the developing world. Transfer payments by phone are a very, very common way to pay for stuff now. You know, China is a great case in point, but also a lot of other areas that are poorer are using phone transfer payments of one sort or another. So the Argentine government using that as a mechanism is actually pretty innovative there. That's a pretty smart way to do it. Uh, let's see, many people in the informal economy don't have bank accounts. So that's also a complicating factor. That's why they're not doing what the U.S. is doing and just doing direct bank transfers. A lot of the most vulnerable people, again, 40% of the Argentine workforce being in the informal sector, a lot of those people don't have bank accounts. So that just makes it, again, harder for the government to try to distribute resources to them since they're underground and the government doesn't really know much about them. So let's see here. What I read is that the expectation is that the government is going to be forced to print money in order to be able to implement costly emergency measures. This is a quote, in order to be able to implement costly emergency measures, both for the population and for the country and for the country's paralyzed industrial sector, end quote. Now, the country is already heavily indebted and doesn't have access to international markets. So Ideally, they would be able to borrow the money they need to pay for this stuff, but they can't. So printing money seems likely. It's the only real alternative. And that's going to be a problem because there's already something like 40% inflation in Argentina. So printing money is probably just going to make that go up even further and make the economic crisis that Argentina is undergoing right now even worse. So on the one hand, they'll have the money for people who are vulnerable. That's going to get distributed and that'll help but they might implode the economy in doing so. And if that happens, the crisis, the viral crisis, that is the COVID-19 crisis could be made a lot worse as the government and the economy and the people all struggle due to that economic collapse. So we'll see. This, uh, this COVID-19 thing is definitely happening at the worst possible time for Argentina. This, uh, their economy and government are just not in a good position uh, to be able to deal with it. So you could be hearing about Argentina in the next couple months, depending on how much money they have to print and uh, how much of a problem it ends up being. So let's see. Then there's Brazil. Uh, this is kind of a meta commentary. I was just reading about this, uh, the, the outbreak in Brazil. Apparently, uh, the virus was introduced to Brazil by way of people who were traveling. That is to say, Brazilians traveling abroad for you know vacation or you know work or what have you. And those people are disproportionately relatively wealthy, or at least upper middle class. And as a result, there's kind of an association in Brazil now between the virus and with uh, the upper echelon of society. So there's kind of a class dimension there. And that's no surprise since Brazil is a society riven by class divisions of one sort. It's not, there's a lot of inequalities there. Uh, but it's interesting that the COVID-19 crisis is manifesting in that way, uh, in that sense. Uh, let's see. It's going to be the poor in Brazil who are going to be hit the hardest. So this is uh, going to make tensions there between classes worse. But we'll see. For now, it's still in its early stages. It's still kind of the upper middle class and upper class that are being hit disproportionately. Uh, but that's going to start proliferating once the virus starts getting out of control. And once it does, uh, it's going to be really hard to stop it spreading and killing people in places like favelas or slum towns or what have you. And that's where the government is really going to have a legitimacy problem. The Bolsonaro government in Brazil is already getting a lot of shit for not taking the crisis seriously and not doing enough earlier. 
And uh, if it does really start hitting favelas and other urban areas hard, that's probably going to get a lot worse. I don't think it'll shake faith in him too much, though, because a lot of that faith comes in the rural areas. That's more his base of support. But uh, he could have some unrest in rural, in urban areas, rather, if things get really bad. So we'll see what happens there. Okay, that brings us to Africa. All right, so for Africa, some of the stories I have are in categories. So for Rwanda, I had a story about abuse of power. And so this is an example of a government abusing emergency powers. There were five soldiers uh, in the Rwandan military who were arrested after allegations from a slum in the capital, Kigali, that they had raped women while enforcing a nationwide lockdown. So obviously people are in a vulnerable position if uh, the military is, has the power of you know life or death or, you know, or maybe just attainment uh, over you as part of uh, emergency powers to enforce quarantine. And those powers ideally would not be abused, but one of the ways you can is to abuse women. And that apparently, possibly, again, it's just an allegation, but that apparently is alleged to have happened in Rwanda. I had another story from Rwanda too. Yeah, this is the one. This is kind of a karma story. It's not really relevant, but I had to mention it. There was a man in Rwanda who broke quarantine to go fishing. And maybe that's not too big a deal since, you know, Rwanda is pretty rural. It's not very dense. Well, actually, it is relatively dense, but its population is relatively rural. And so if you just go fishing by yourself, maybe not a big deal, but still technically breaking quarantine. So what happens to him, Nero? He gets pulled in by a giant fish. Close. He gets eaten by a crocodile. Yeah, that was pretty close. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So Good are guess. they going to have a mascot like Smokey the Bears for Don't Start Forest Fires or whatever? But it's, <laughs> don't go outside when you have COVID or during COVID time and it's a crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, uh, I guess that also illustrates that there is other stuff going on in the world. Like, yeah, if you want to go fishing, that's great, even if there's a quarantine, but you still have to worry about all the stuff you would normally have to worry about. So that's Rwanda. Uh, I also had Uganda. So, you know, enforcing a quarantine is tricky. You know, you have lots of trade-offs to make policy-wise. One of the counterproductive things that you can do in enforcing quarantine is arresting large groups of people and then imprisoning them all together in a group. That That's... That obviously is just going to make things worse in terms of spreading the virus around. And uh, apparently the Ugandan government did that, or at least some Ugandan police did that. Uh, they were holding 165 people for breaking the curfew that is in place. Uh, but there are fears that they're being kept close together uh, in the jail that they're being held in. So that kind of goes back to the earlier example we were talking about in India, where all the migrant workers were having to go home, but then they were all crowding together using mass transportation to do so. Going back to India, there's something else I should mention. A lot of people didn't use mass transportation. They had to walk just because they didn't have the money for mass transportation or because it was shut down for quarantine reasons or for whatever reason. A lot of people ended up having to walk sometimes hundreds of miles to get back to their villages. So that's another example of human cost there. Uh, let's see, so going to Kenya, this kind of illustrates the importance of religion. Kenyan, Kenyan pastors have asked the government to include churches in their list of quote-unquote essential services in order to allow them to remain open. No great shock there. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some people in the U.S. were trying to do that. 
But that just gives you an idea of how important people take religion. Certainly the pastors do, but I imagine they have a fair amount of support amongst their flock, so to speak. Well, if I can speak from the Christian perspective, like your salvation and spiritual well-being is more important than your physical one. Mm -hmm. If you take the case that you're either going to go to heaven or hell for eternity, that's a, a pretty key thing. I wouldn't really expect them to be too alarmed by an illness that's going around. Yeah, you've seen that a fair bit. You know, that's something that's uh, probably responsible for Iran's problems with regard to the crisis. You know, the Iranian government really did not do uh, enough in the early stages. Like there was a big religious festival in the city of Qam, which is a major center for uh, a major locale for Shia Islam. And uh, they didn't cancel it. They just kind of kept it open. And so there was a whole bunch of people coming in for that. And, you know, that probably did a lot to spread the virus around. I guess it's no surprise, given that Iran's an Islamic theocracy. <laughs> so maybe that's to be expected. But still, that's uh, part of the that's a contributing factor there for their plight. Uh, let's see, Tanzania extended visas for foreign nationals who can't leave the country because of the pandemic. So, you know, there's a lot of travel restrictions between different countries. What do you do with the people who are stranded, assuming that their governments can't send a charter plane to just come and pick them up? Well, in Tanzania, they extended their visa. So that's probably something that's happening in a lot of places. But uh, that is one manifestation there. That is one solution there. So let's see, South Africa. So... South Africa is interesting because they've had some problems responding to the virus, but I've also read that they've had a pretty good response or at least a strong response. So in the pro category and the strong response category, they have decent testing numbers. They've been pretty good about that. Uh, they've had serious stern government action. They haven't had government officials coming out and downplaying the crisis or lying about it or what have you. They've been pretty serious about it and have been trying to purposely take action. Armies, sorry, army patrols have been dispatched to try to enforce shutdown orders. So South, Afri South Africa is an example of a government using the military to try to enforce quarantine. Probably mixed blessing there. There's constant messaging about social distancing in the media. So there's a good information campaign happening. Uh, there are pickup trucks dispensing free hand sanitizer. Obviously, that's very useful. And uh, speedy intervention of testing units trying to track down those who might be exposed uh, to the first confirmed case. So backtracing. So they've been pretty good on all of these counts, but there are some down points. Uh, let's see. There are apparently a lot of people who are basically just ignoring quarantine. There's a the reporter uh, who wrote the article I read said that uh, there were still a lot of children and people playing football and whatnot in uh, crowded streets and alleys and whatnot. So apparently actual observance of the quarantine is a little hit or miss. Uh, let's see. And there's been a lot of corruption in South Africa over the past couple decades. And the result is that some state institutions are not responding well. Like uh, the government as a whole is responding seriously, seriously, specifically government leadership. But some of the specific institutions are led by political cronies who are appointed because they were perceived to be loyal rather than competent. And uh, the reporter who wrote the article I read suggests that these people are completely out of their depth. Like apparently a, an insider within the government uh, told him that they just don't know what to do and have no clue 
Let's see, there's also been some confusion about some of the regulations, clumsy messaging, and some U-turns from some of the country's quote-unquote less impressive ministers, however you want to interpret that. Uh, Again, that's a direct quote. And let's see, the police and army, for their part, while it's good that they're enforcing the quarantine, sometimes they've been a little too uh, enthusiastic, shall we say. Apparently there's been some violence on their part while trying to get people to uh, recognize and observe the quarantine. There have been, quote, this is a quote from the article, humiliating, beating, and even shooting civilians on the streets streets of the commercial capital, Johannesburg, and elsewhere. So that's not good. Um, I guess it's effective, you could say. That's a pretty... That's a pretty proficient deterrent there for anybody thinking of uh, avoiding quarantine. But uh, there's obviously an issue there with, you know, human rights, civil liberties, what have you. So that's a downside there. It would be better if they were more professional about it. So that's Africa. That's uh, what I had for Africa anyway. Kind of a mixed bag. And you can kind of see how they're struggling with a lack of resources and other issues there unique to them. Middle East. Middle East is pretty short. Actually, I've got a fun one for the Middle East, too. Uh, so let's see. Yemen is a concern for the Middle East because they've, they're a conflict zone, obviously, but also because they're generating so many refugees. So it's difficult for, well, the Yemen, the Yemeni, the Yemeni, the Yemen people. Yemen doesn't really have a government. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to get out of my mouth. Yemen doesn't really have a government. And so there's not really public health institutions on the ground that can really help mitigate the crisis. And uh, they have some, but, you know, the country is just so dysfunctional now that it's not much. And international actors can't really get in to help because there's so much violence. And uh, the refugees are particularly problematic because they're all in refugee camps, which are very dense. And so it's predicted that the virus is going to spread very rapidly in those camps and that there's going to be a lot of need for medical assistance there. That's probably not going to be available. So Yemen... (laughs) having trouble saying Yemen today. Yemen is a case study in uh, what happens when you just don't have public institutions available to help. It's uh, it's going to be pretty Darwinian there for a while, pretty Hobbesian. I already talked about Iran, so I think I can probably skip that. Uh, there's doubts about the statistics in Iran. People think the government is lying about it. No shock there. Cases climbed in China in January, but Iranian Iranian officials didn't restrict travel between the two countries anyway. And uh, there's some trade ties between China, so that's pretty relevant. You know, they probably should have acted sooner given the trade ties, but they didn't. And they didn't delay the uh, religious festival festival in the city of Qom until after the first deaths from COVID-19 in Iran. So again, all of that just exacerbated uh, the crisis. So the interesting one I had is Tunisia, which I guess is not Middle East, but Middle East, North Africa, you know, called it sort of the Arab regions of uh, the world. And uh, Tunisia here made my list because they had an interesting innovation that they're using to try to uh, enforce quarantine. The police are apparently using robots in order to patrol the streets. And uh, the the robots are being controlled remotely. And so uh, the police controlling them can approach people and actually talk to them. They can demand they produce their papers uh, so that they can identify them and make sure that they're actually supposed to be there, that they're allowed to be out working and breaking quarantine. And there's actually a pretty interesting video of it. And, you, know, you can kind of see this robot rolling up to somebody and they're kind of talking. <laughs> you know, the guy 
is speaking from the robot in a very harsh voice. He's kind of yelling at him. So in Tunisia, part of uh, dealing with the virus and dealing with quarantine is getting yelled at by robots, interestingly. Has anyone seen Chappie? <laughs> Case in point. Although Chappie, I don't think, was as angry as this guy was. Yeah. Perhaps a portent of things to come. <clears throat> Let's see. The last one I had was Azion, but we're pretty close here. Five minutes? Eh, I guess I'll try to rush it just so I can finish it this time. So this is Southeast Asia. And the big international institution in Southeast Asia is uh, ASEAN. It's an acronym that's down, that stands for uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, I think. I hope I'm getting that right. And it was kind of meant to be a cooperative institution, supranational institution that uh, facilitated greater cooperation between Southeast Asian nations, but it didn't really happen that way. They've The principal thing they've agreed to cooperate on is uh, to recognize each other's sovereignty by not requiring each other to do anything. So it's not a very efficient institution in that regard. But in response to the crisis, ASEAN as an institution did agree with the Chinese government to share information and best practices. Uh, apparently, what I have written here is that uh, a lot of the governments in ASEAN have very different approaches to the virus and that there's it's just a mosaic, basically, of different policies. I don't have all of those here, but uh, that is apparently the case. So not a lot of, you know, characteristic to ASEAN, not a lot of actual cooperation happening, basically. Uh, it probably will surprise exactly nobody familiar with the Philippines over the past few years that Duterte has been in the news uh, with regard to how he's handling the crisis. Technically, President Duterte has emergency powers, and he's been using a so-called enhanced community quarantine in order to try to establish quarantines in different parts of the country. It involves uh, travel restrictions and curfews, so no shock there. But apparently that's how the government is responding to the crisis. It's using emergency powers uh, to force quarantines on a case-by-case -case basis in different localities. Now, the bigger issue, uh, and the thing that got Duterte in trouble with human rights groups, again, uh, is that there is image of uh, curfew violators being locked in dog cages or being forced to sit in the midday sun. That's a problem for human rights reasons, obviously. You can see the interest of human rights groups there. And apparently, President Duterte has also told military and police forces to, quote, shoot dead violent protesters uh, who protest during quarantine. Apparently, this referred specifically to a protest uh, by members of a leftist group that started a protest in uh, the Manila metropolitan area uh, that had to do with uh, food distribution. They were apparently upset about how much food they were being given started protesting. So Duterte responded by, to that by saying that uh, the government should just shoot them, which is pretty characteristic for him. No shock there. But that is sort of the drama in the Philippines right now. Uh, Duterte's uh, flirtation with authoritarianism and state violence seems to continue and uh, color is coloring his response to the uh, COVID nineteen virus. Pretty sure virus. he's past flirtation at this point. He's <laughs> at least at second base. <laughs> There's certainly a strong argument to be made to that effect, and I don't doubt that any number of people in the Philippines would argue that, including probably a lot of people listening who might be from the Philippines. So that's what I had on the Philippines, on Malaysia. I just, this was kind of a cute story. The Malaysian government implemented a rule 
that only the heads of household could go out shopping. And that, of course, is a measure to try to limit the number of people who are out and about and uh, in turn exposed to the public and perhaps to infection. But uh, this had a sort of unexpected effect. Uh, a lot of the heads of households are, of course, men. It's a traditional society, a developing country, so it's still pretty patriarchal. So the heads of households are generally men, but a lot of them are not used to having to shop because that's kind of women's <laughs> work. So there's this a lot like of... a bad Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> well, it kind of is because there's apparently a lot of stories going around the social media in Malaysia about uh, husbands who just are totally clueless and can't shop they don't know like what's what they don't know how to get the things on their list some of the things on their list they don't even know what are like it's it's very much a bit of a shit show in a sense <laughs> it's just they're just not equipped to deal with it like there was one guy who bought like a a pound of something he was only supposed to buy, buy an ounce of and it's uh, perishable so he apparently got a death stare from his wife when he got back home with a whole bunch of crap that was going to go to waste just lots of cute stories like that. I just thought that was a humorous. Oh, man. And then Thailand is interesting. There, Obviously, Thailand has an economy that is uh, principally dominated by tourism, so it won't surprise anybody that their economy is struggling. But one of the reasons it's struggling, and I may have talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to bring it up again now. One of the reasons the economy is also struggling is because of their currency is actually appreciating. And the reason their currency is appreciating is because Thailand is apparently a center for the gold trade, which I had no idea about. I didn't know that there was a lot of gold trading there, but it is. And obviously, during a major crisis, international investors are looking for safe assets to invest in. And one of those is gold. And apparently so many people are engaging in the gold trade, as it were, in Thailand that uh, there's a bunch of money coming in that's inflating the value of the currency. And that, of course, is bad for Thai manufacturers because it makes all of their stuff more expensive and in turn less competitive. So not only is Thailand's tourism industry getting squeezed, uh, also their manufacturing sector is getting squeezed. So that's Southeast Asia, or at least what I have for it. Oh, a bit of a world tour this week. Yeah. We had a almost complete global snapshot of what's been going on with the, the world. Nice of you to condense it for us. I wonder what the conversion is between the time that you spend combing through all the news and then getting up a set of notes and sharing with us. How long does it take know. you to convey the news as opposed to, to consume it? Oh, I've been having trouble focusing in general the past year or two, so that doesn't help. But I mean, in general, it's not that hard. You just read and then if something seems relevant, I just type out a few lines just the critical stuff, maybe cut and paste to uh, something that I can quote. Mm -hmm. You know, if I do it more purposely, the better notes are the ones where I really think about it and where I kind of uh, don't just cut and paste and then draw conclusions later. They're the ones that I kind of analyze and then write out some commentary to try to add color and context. Mm -hmm. Those are the better notes, but I haven't really had a lot to add color and context to lately because, you know, everything is just COVID-19 this and COVID-19 that. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe I spend several hours a week reading news. You can probably guess that just on how much uh, how much is in that weekly thing I send you guys. I think I still send I still send that to you, and you still receive it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a list of all the articles I read in a given week. Oh, that might be something to ask the chat. So 
Agent Smith for the articles that he's reading for the stuff that is kind of useful. There's some good value to it. He'll just save that into one big email that he pushes at the end of the week. It's like these were the interesting news articles I found all in one kind of. Well, not some... not interesting. It is just kind of a batch of everything. Okay. It's like some of them are interesting. Some of them are extremely boring. <laughs> yeah. Almost invariably. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like super specific. If people were interested in that, uh, hmm, I can think about how to do that. I think you offer it as part of your subscription thing. Is no. that what it was? No? Oh. No, I put a couple friends on that list. But yeah, aside from that, it's not something that is monetized. That would be something that you should put on your Patreon, dude. Oh, God. Just one Patreon person to another. I guess I could. Yeah. Let's see, what would that be? Just like anybody, or would that be like a tier thing? Just do it as a... Basic a post. access. So you can do posts on your Patreon page. And you could make oh, it I free. See. It doesn't have to be something that costs money, but it's yeah. a way to up the activity level on your page and shit like that. Gotcha. People like seeing activity. What did Agent Smith do? You're doing lots of stuff. A lot of times, we've talked about this before, people get hung up on, is the stuff I'm doing awesome enough that it's worth reporting? Man, that is never going to be perfectly satisfied. Yeah. As long as you're not going full No Man's Sky with stuff, <laughs> it's okay to release things in beta in current year. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So we still haven't gotten to Canada. We'll have to save that for some other time. Did you hear about Canada Neural? They had to shut down their rail network because of protests, uh, Native American protests regarding a pipeline. And it pretty severely affected the whole logistical network in Canada for a couple of weeks. Huh. I do know that there have been protests in the Dakotas or something yeah. related to pipelines in the U.S., but I don't think that would hit us that hard. That's not a, yeah. a major thoroughfare. Yeah, not really. I think it was more specifically oil, but they were protesting just general rail or at where it is or something. Yeah, I think North Dakota is the big shale oil place. Mm -hmm. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, there was that big uh, round rock thing a couple of years ago. That was definitely that area. Similar idea, but I hadn't heard about anything recently. Well, was there anything else you wanted to hit on or did you want to call it a night? I think this is a good amount. I've been streaming for 10 hours, so I'm ready oh, to God. get some rest. Cool. Yeah. It's been a nice weekend. I hit a pretty big power spike on my warrior in classic wow and by the metrics he's somewhere between the like 97th and 99th percentile of tanks oh wow so he's getting up there it's a lot of effort from the guild too like yeah. helping him to be the biggest badass he can but that was a pretty rewarding couple of days but it also put some pressure on me because i switched my specialization i was doing a sword and a shield and now i'm doing two weapons which makes me more vulnerable i have to be more aware of the danger from the bosses and when i need to put a shield on so that was more intense but really fun and we definitely rocked it as a team 
Huh. And did you make a movie or something about that? Is yeah, that it's a it's kind of a joke thing, but I did a Thunder Fury video. Gotta give credit to Cobra X. He's the editor who put oh, everything gotcha. all together. But there are a bunch of different steps involved in making this legendary item in the game. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the depictions of it are very just kind of a dry list of you have to get this, 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 and this. And these are the stats of the item. You explain the use of it. But I RP'd the use of the item, like from getting the bindings to smelting it and all that. Imagining the character in the world going through that process rather than we're a bunch of 2020 kids who are playing an old game that's been figured out. A lot of the immersion of the fantasy has been totally lost with classic, which is the thing that I'm trying to breathe back into it a little bit. Gotcha. Does Agent Smith have a Twitter? Yes, he does. It's he in does. the Who Is It command. Give him a follow. Pretty active with it, too. Yeah, relatively. I try to be. I try to post something every day or thereabouts. Generally, that is something I select for. <laughs> Unlike the list, I do try to parse what I post on there. So generally the stuff there is stuff that's meant to illuminate some kind of subject or give an example of something or what have you. Mm -hmm. Well, so, cool. Yeah. Check out Agent Smith. Let me know when your Patreon stuff is up and I can help push that for you during the world discussion yeah. time. Yeah, I'm still working on that. I still need to kind of get into that. Yeah. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to balance that with taking over the world in Civ Six. That's true. <laughs> And one of these is more fun than the other. Yeah. Oh, lost my. Uh... Yeah, so I'm gonna. I'll let you know about that. And uh... oh yeah, once I get that done, I'll try to do the Eastern Front thing we've been planning to do for like a year. Oh hell yeah! So that would be similar to the Pacific Theater series that we did. Instead of yeah. doing a weekly segment where it's like this is the shit that happened this week and these are the questions you have and we're going to answer them. We're looking at a long series of events and being more thorough and telling the full story of that, at least in this kind of casual conversational setting. We are not like people with bleeding edge breaking news in the sense that yeah. uh, we're changing the meta. It would be history of the Eastern Front of World War II for Twitch. So yeah. that means that I'll probably interject with some StarCraft comparisons. That's one of the most fun things about talking about the history of different wars and battles is we play lots of games and strategy games. So we're thinking about the maps and the different factions and what their strengths and weaknesses are and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I had fun with the Pacific Theater one. So it'll be cool to kind of get into the Eastern Front. And it's kind of an underserved topic. You know, I mean, the Eastern Front gets attention, but... You know, I feel like a, a better version could be told of that story that does more, I think, honors uh, the Russian perspective more, mm -hmm. which I think is generally not the perspective that it's told from. So I'll try to do that, but that's going to be a while. I just got to get the Patreon stuff sorted and technically get the epilogue episode for the Rio Treaty series done since I still haven't recorded that. So then it'll be officially done. And I think I was, what... When you do a podcast, you put stuff up on like different platforms. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I still got to do that. Uh, Cobra Venom <clears throat> is the guy who knows how to make all that magic happen. I don't know shit about that. <laughs> so he's the 
behind the scenes guy for a bunch of different StarCraft creators. A streamer, a person who's live and engaging with the audience is more of an entertainer rather than someone who knows how to do all the logistical production stuff for uh, content delivery. Like delivering mm -hmm. content to people is its own set of steps with its own level of skill, like understanding where to put stuff so that people are going to see it, understanding what people want and how to do all that kind of stuff. So very, very helpful in rounding off the things that I'm bad at. So we have Team Neuro now, which involves a lot of people who rock the stuff that is lacking for me, which allows me to focus more of what I'm good at, which is pretty awesome. So I'm very thankful for that. Thank you, Mr. Cobra. Yep. Well, you have a great night, Mr. Agent Smith. It is always awesome having you on. You too. This sir. was a rocking episode. And we will see you on the next one, sir. Yep. See you next time. GG.